Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago. With one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications, Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to tfunk.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fascination Street Mastering Studios. Have your songs mastered by Jens Bogrian and Tony Lindgren, the engineers that mastered bands like Opeth, Dimu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Creator, Sepultura, Amana Marth, and many more by using the coupon code URM18 in the online mastering configurator. You'll receive a 15% discount on your order. The code is valid for the rest of the year. Visit www.fascinationstreet.se to learn more and book your mastering session today. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuggah, Periphery, The Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Also, I want to take a second to tell you about something I'm very, very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and of course, hanging out. You know, this industry is all about relationships, and think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can not only help you with inspiration and motivation, but also with potential professional collaborations? I've seen a lot of professional collaborations come from the summit in the past. And speaking of networking and relationships, there's no other event where you'll get to learn from and hang out with some of the very best in the production business. I mean, you could go to something like NAM, but good luck getting more than five minutes with your hero. At this, you actually will get to hang out, like hang out, hang out. And just a few of this year's instructors are Andrew Wade, Kerpaloo, Blasco, Taylor Larson, Billy Decker, Canyon Kevin Cherko, Jesse Cannon, and more. Seriously, this is one of the best and most productive events you will ever go to. So if that sounds like something that's up your alley, go to urmsummit.com to find out more. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. The reason we were going to talk today or the topic we were going to talk about is the idea of or the myth of buying success. If only it was that easy. If only it was that easy. This is a a real personal one to me because it, um, because I got accused of that a lot growing up um, because of my dad's success in music. A lot of people who were jealous of stuff that, I achieved, they would say that he would buy me my record deal or things like that, which is obviously bullshit. I mean, if, if he had bought me a record deal, he, I wish he would have also kept me that record deal. (laughs) You know, you know what I mean? Like, like, couldn't he have like, at least like, 
had them keep us a little longer or something. But I mean, I've, so I've heard that a lot throughout my life and, uh, it's really pissed me off. Um, so my, my thought has always been that you pretty much can't do it, but then you do hear about dudes who do get quite the advantage because of it. So my personal take on this is that you can buy an open door, but from that point on, well, and first of all, you can't open just any door with money, but there are some doors you can open with money, but whether or not you actually walk through the doorway or stay there once you're inside, you can't buy that. And with that, I want to know what you guys think. I think first you got to figure out what do you call success? Like it's just being signed to a record label. Is that enough for you to consider that you're a successful band or do you need to have, you know, a gold record or go on tours and be able to tour internationally? I think to me, you need to figure out what your definition of success is and then see what, if you're saying that money can get you there, figure out exactly what it is. Like in your, in your scenario, the uh, money couldn't buy you a record deal. <laughs> you know, like if it did, you'd just be putting it out yourself. Like why even go through someone else? Yeah. And my definition of success doesn't involve getting the chance to work. It, <laughs> it involves, you know, it, it involves the fruits of your labor after years and years of doing something. Um, and it's still kind of hard for me to define, but I mean, what do you think, Finn? Well, I mean, we can see there's like empirical proof that it doesn't work that way because if money could buy success, then, uh, movies would never flop and products would never flop and bands on big labels would never flop, but all those things happen all the time. I mean, you know, as one example, um, you know, Procter and Gamble makes, I don't know, $50 billion a year or something like that, but they have products that flop even though they spend tens of millions of dollars on marketing for them. So, uh, clearly money does not buy success. I mean, all other things being equal, obviously having financial resources is a good thing, but, uh, it's not enough to make something successful. I mean, that's just a fact. And you can tell yourself all day long that the reason you failed is because someone else had more resources than you do. And, you know, there may be some times in which that's true, but I think those circumstances are very rare. And actually, I don't usually hear people say, I failed or my band or whatever failed because we didn't have enough money. Usually what they're doing is discrediting someone else's success. They're usually pointing the finger and saying, so-and-so only succeeded because they had money, which is even worse <laughs> than like making an excuse for your own failure. It's discrediting someone else's success, which is even more gross to me. Yeah, it is pretty gross. You know what a good example was? Do you, anyone here remember Metal Army? Yes. For people who aren't familiar with what metal army was and it's been 10 years so, so i feel like we can talk about it god you know? damn i can't believe it's been that long that's horrible i know man uh it's awful but basically about that time period 10 years ago metalsucks.net was fucking crushing the internet as far as metal press goes i think that they had at that point in time surpassed blabbermouth in terms of daily page views and were just the biggest thing. And it was also a shift. There was a shift on the internet back then. That's when blogging became big. It's no longer big, but back then, you know, blogging was becoming a real thing and kind of much like podcasting is a thing now. And 
a lot of people wanted to, you know, wanted to copy the Metal Sucks thing. And they figured that they could just write some blogs and put some money into it. I actually, I actually wrote a couple things for them. So did I, but I was pressured into it. So, yeah, so what they did, they, this label decided that they were going to start a site called Metal Army that was going to rival Metal Sucks. And all they had to do was grab a few. They are going to try to poach some of their writers, me and Finn, um, and get some, Doc, too. I believe they tried to get Doc as well, and that they were going to get a few of the musicians on their own label to become, like, pro bloggers and just throw a bunch of money into this thing, and well, lo and behold, you would have the next metal sucks, but the thing failed. Like, I think it failed real hard. I don't think it lasted more than six months. And what was funny, too, is that everyone who wrote for it hated it, <laughs> felt really, really pressured to do it, and the whole thing felt very ingenuine. I didn't hate it, just for the record. But but I'll tell you what, I only wrote a couple things for it because, so when I, I was writing for Metal Sucks at the time, and every time I wrote something for them, it would get, you know, a pretty big reaction. I would get, you know, a couple hundred comments and people would, you know, be hitting me up about it and stuff, which is cool. I wrote similar stuff, the same kind of thing, but on Metal Army, and it was crickets. It would get, like, literally three comments instead of 200 uh, and I was, and even though they were paying me, I was just, it wasn't enough, you know, for me to do, and you know, unless they're paying me a, a, a ton of money, I still would have quit because it's just no fun to like put your creative energy into something that just kind of gets eaten up by the void. And there's just like crickets, you know, that's it. That's exactly how I felt too. I never got the amount of response that you got on metal sucks. Like you were. I mean, you're way better than your blog was way better than mine, but but mine was fairly popular still. Out of the guest blogs, I do think mine was fairly popular, and it got a pretty decent response on Metal Sucks. And then the same thing happened, you know. If I'm used to 100 comments or something, to suddenly get two, and and I feel like I'm being real pressured to do this. The Metal Sucks guys never pressured me ever. They just you know they just let me do my thing. So. Anyways, I feel like if you felt that way and I felt that way, a bunch of the other writers probably felt that way and everyone anywhere. But point being, they could not put enough money into that site. Like there was no amount of money they could have put into that site would have saved it, in my opinion. Yeah, or, or without naming any particular names, think about like um, think about the various different fads that have popped up in music over the years. Like, you know, there was the like vampire trend around that same time. And there were a couple labels that tried to have vampire bands that just went nowhere. And, you know, you can try as hard as you want to make it work. It just, if, if people aren't into it, you can throw all the money you want at it and it's not going to take. I'm going to refute, well, not refute, but I'm going to, I'm going to do exactly what you said was gross earlier. But this is because they told me this. The label told me we're, not going to really push your record because of this vampires band. Yeah. So like it, it they, they actually, so that it actually did happen. It, it wasn't something I just made up like verbatim. Uh, this vampires band is going to be as big as black veil brides. And so your death metal band, sorry. I think that was actually in the press release is that it was going to be bigger or as big as black veil brides. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, exactly. You could not put 
enough money into that band to even get it arrested or something like well that's not what i said what i said is like it's gross to discredit somebody else's success not as much i mean this is a fact that if the label decides not to push your record that you know that hurts you it's it, i mean that's that's a fact what what i think is gross is to say oh well um uh behemoth is only big because their label uh invests so much marketing dollars in everything they do if they were you know if they were an indie band they'd be nowhere you know the label gets all the credit that's what i think is gross got it yeah i agree with you i think the people that say things like that they don't really understand what advertising does or you know not not to get too far into it but just because you're in a magazine doesn't mean someone's gonna buy your concert ticket you know i mean shit yeah like uh what was it I think Justice League, that movie was the most heavily advertised movie ever. And it didn't even uh, recoup its budget. You know, forget like the the production budget, forget about the advertising budget for it. Uh, And I mean, that was on every bag of Doritos. It had its own cereals, anything you can think of. And I mean, I liked that movie, but uh, you couldn't hate it. You did? Yeah, whatever. But like, I'm I'm a fan. Well, well, I'm, I'm, wait, wait. I'm just impressed. Someone like yeah, no, I'm, I, I am a definite DC fanboy, uh, but you couldn't pay audiences to go and watch that movie. And again, this is this is not just a regular movie. This is one of the most heavily advertised movies to ever be in existence. Following Suicide Squad, which isn't that also a similar yes. a similar situation where so much money. Insane money went into it and just crickets. Well, anyhow, so we've, we've made our point that money does not guarantee success, right? I mean, there's, we could list a million examples of it. And anybody that isn't convinced by now, you should just uh, probably just uh, smash your phone and go jump off a cliff right now. <laughs> cool. Podcast done. But, you know, I, I think we do need to address some things that money does buy. Money could yes. get you good production quality. It could get you a good artist, you know, good packaging. Um, and, you know, Finn, you've gone over a lot of this in some of your previous videos um, that all this stuff is important. You know, it's important to have good promo photos and good, you know, have a good graphic designer making your advertising material. This is stuff that money could buy. But, you know, just because you land your picture in alternative press doesn't mean that you know you're you're going to take off. You're going to become a bench sevenfold. But there's there's a prerequisite though. I think um, in order, and it's kind of the same way as when people think that all they have to do is use you know Facebook's marketing platform, throw some money in, and suddenly everything's going to work. The prerequisite for all of this that you throw money into is that before. Before you even get to that stage, what you have, uh, what you're going to put money into is something that people want and it's worth putting money into. I think that's that's the real that's the real rub with the whole thing. If people didn't like it, you know, before they're not going to like it when you start advertising it. I mean, advertising doesn't make people like something; it just makes them aware that it exists and maybe gets them to pay attention to you for a minute. But it doesn't change the nature of your product and advertising a product people don't like. I mean, look at it. Look at the comments of any ad on Instagram for a shitty product. And really all they're doing is digging themselves deeper by <laughs> continuing to like advertise this thing that everyone's roasting in the comments. You know, it is, it's, it's not magic. Like advertising advertisements and marketers are not 
magicians, you know, we can't, we don't have the power of mind control to like put money into this machine that magically makes you like something. You know, that's not how it works. It's very similar to the myth of great recording gear. Right. Um, I mean, there is great recording gear that, I mean, it does legitimately sound great. If you put a great source into it. Plug me into Petrucci's rig at NRG and guess what it's going to sound like? Shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have, if you use a U87 through like, through a Neve board on a really horrible singer, you're just going to have real high quality, horrible vocals. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, uh, recording money. Can't make good recordings. Can't buy good recordings, you know, or gear, I should say, doesn't make good recordings and advertisements don't guarantee success. I mean, it's as simple as that. Again, I wish it was that easy. If it was that easy, we could all just like max out our credit cards and we'd all be fucking Bob rock, you know, but that's not how it works. What do you think about these ideas that we hear a lot? So, like, yeah, when people are trying to discourage, like, disparage somebody else's success or discredit it, um, I mean, this is society-wide, but let's specifically talk about the music industry. You do hear a lot about this person had a rich parent or, like you said, with behemoth, not that that... Not that I've ever heard that about Behemoth, or but like the label paid for it all. Um, have you ever seen anything even remotely close to true like that? I mean, have you ever seen a success story that's had any real longevity where you honestly could say, "Yeah, Dad funded it." How would you even know where the money where the money's coming from? I mean, exactly. I mean, you know what? Like we can say. Black Veil Brides, yeah, and Andy's parents paid for their fir- first music video. They gave him, you know, a $1,500 or something to make a music video, and it took off on YouTube. Uh, I mean, if that counts, but that's well, not so like... did Rebecca Black's parents. Yeah, so, I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> there's, example, there's examples like that, but, you know, the, the beer sacks weren't, you know, funding the, the career of Black Veil Brides. They paid for their, you know, kid to have a music video when he was a teenager. It, it just happened to, to take off on YouTube because people cared about, you know, this kid and what he had to say. Well, this is this is what this is exactly what I've noticed is whenever there is that situation of, you know, a family that does help out someone in a band, that's that's what it is. So like say Trivium, for instance, that was a band, they came out super young and Matt Heafy's dad did help them out at first. Like I think he bought some ads in Guitar World and, you know, threw in on the marketing budget, actually, for the label. And a lot of people gave them shit for it. Uh, but, dude, it's been almost 15 years, and that band keeps on grinding. Like, they don't stop. Dad did not create that. I just don't see the point of, like, even if it's true that Let's just say that Matt's dad did buy their success, which I don't think he did, but let's say he did. So what? Like, what does that have to do with you? You know, what is, uh, as they, as they said back in the twenties, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how does that, why, why would you bother spending one second of your time, you know, worrying about the fact that someone else's success was potentially bought? Like, that's just time you're not spending investing in your own project that'll make you successful, you know? Because it's easier than 
taking a long, hard look at why your own project's failing, I think. Something that I, that I see very frequently, like in just about any comment section, um, you know, when you have these musicians that, you know, they're asking for help, but they think that they just need someone to push them. They just need one thing to happen for them to become big, you know, whether it's like they need the, they need a manager, they need like a booking agent or, you know, they, they, if just they, they can get signed to a record label, they know they're going to be huge. Um, and all this is based on the assumption that people just need to hear your band for you to become massive. Um, I mean, and you know, the three of us, we know that's not the case. And I would hope most of the listeners know that that's just not the case. If it was, then anytime you make a Facebook post or, you know, an Instagram post or whatever, you would see thousands of new streams. You would see this happening. So when people aren't getting these streams, when they don't see the traction, they're automatically assuming, oh, we're not spending enough money. Uh, And, you know, it, it sucks to have to look at yourself and say, hey, maybe, you know, maybe my song just isn't resonating with an audience. Like, you know, everyone wants to assume the world is their audience, but it's not. Um, You know, if we're talking about metal, there's a very specific type of person that listens to metal and even more specific type of person that's going to spend money on anything with, you know, metal music related. Um, So instead of figuring out how to create a song or create a music video that's going to connect with that person, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, we... You know, we didn't have the $2,000 it takes to, you know, put out a music video or whatever and say, you know, Trivium did this and that. To me, it's, it seems like a very easy way out and a very easy excuse. But then the question is, if we do agree that uh, spending money on certain things can help, obviously, because it's we wouldn't do it if it didn't help, um, what do you think the limits are? Like, how far does it go? I mean, Finn, we spend thousands of dollars a month on Facebook ads. So, I mean, they do work. Well, not always. True, Sometimes, true, not always. You know, there's certain things that we have tried to sell that just people were not fucking buying it. And, you know, we threw money at it, and eventually we just were like, well, I guess people just don't want this, so we stopped spending money on it. Yeah, and I will say that when that happened... We didn't blame the marketing. We we sat back and asked ourselves what it is about the product or the offer that didn't resonate. Yeah. Well, let me let me unpack that a little bit because I think there's something um, I think there's something to be learned uh, uh, learned from that. So I'll, I'll I'll first let me just quickly deconstruct how this works for us, and then you can think about how it works for you. So. Think about what happens here. There's basically three pieces. The first thing is that, so let's say we're advertising the current Nail the Mix session. So somebody sees uh, one of our ads and then they either decide to watch it or not. And then after they've watched it a little bit, they either decide to click or not. So there's two things that happen there. First, did we catch their attention? Second, did they click? Once they click on the page, do they go to, you know, click the buy button or not? So there's you know, there's three different things happening there and we can judge the success or failure of each one of those. Like if they didn't even watch the ad at all, well, maybe that means we need to make a better ad. If they hit the landing page, but they didn't buy, and if they didn't click, well, maybe we didn't use the right words. Or if they get to the landing page, but they didn't click on it, they didn't click buy, well, maybe we didn't do a good enough job of convincing them on the landing page, or maybe the product itself just isn't good. Or, you know, once people buy it, do we get a bunch of complaints 
immediately afterwards, like, what the hell, this sucks, like, this isn't what I wanted, which has never happened to us, but I have seen it happen in other businesses. So my point is, um, if you are wondering why you aren't getting traction, like, try to figure out exactly where it's not working. And if, if so, so in, in some cases, throwing money at it will help. So if, for example, um, every single person that hit that landing page ended up buying our shit, then I would say, well, we should just throw money at this and try to get as many people as we possibly can to that landing page because everybody who sees it loves it. That's rarely the case. But if that was the case, on the other hand, so like for a band, what happens when people hear your music? Or is it, what, is it a case where uh, everybody who hears this song flips out about it and tells you it's amazing and shares it with 50 of their friends? If that's what's happening, then I think you should consider spending money on getting it out there because clearly the problem, clearly you have a good product here and what you need to do is just spread the word, which is what you know advertising is good at. But I think that's rarely the case. I think people, I, to your point, Dan, I think people oftentimes believe, well, if only more people knew about it, then it would be a hit. But I think usually it's not the case. I think usually the issue is that you do not yet have a product that people really love. Yeah, it's a hit. It'll be a hit before a hit. You'll, meaning yes, you'll know. A hit within its circle of friends. Yeah. A hit on, I forget which rapper said that uh, until you can control your own block, how can you even think about going national? Exactly. You'll know. And so like I have a YouTube channel, which recent just recently has started to like take off in the way that I was hoping it would. And congrats on it, you. by the way, it's doing great. Thank you. And so just for anybody who's listening, like, so for a long time, my videos were getting a couple hundred views and I kept experimenting, kept trying this, this, and this, this. And then recently I put out a couple that now have like 50 and 40,000 views. So clearly I figured out what people wanted, you know, and I had tried spending money on ads before and stuff and it just didn't, didn't, didn't do anything because the problem was my content. And then once I figured out what the right content was, they just organically took off. So I guess, you know, I'm just saying the same thing we've already said, but if you're not getting traction, instead of like, instead of thinking that money is the answer, 99 times out of a hundred, the answer is that you need to keep working on your product just like I did. And it was frustrating. It took me a year and it was embarrassing and frustrating to like put shit out and have nobody give a fuck about it. But you know, it took me a year, but I figured it out. I think that's the real problem is that it is frustrating and embarrassing at first when you're testing this. And I got to say, there's quite a few people outside of, outside of, you know, the, our market who have noticed what we're doing, who are constantly ask me for advice on this kind of stuff. And they'll hit me with like some super detailed questions like uh, about like ad strategy and like sequence and like all this shit. And I look at their content and it's garbage. And so I'll be like, look, first of all, I'm, I'm not the one who does all of that, but I have some knowledge of it. But your questions are so far beyond what you need to be asking or worrying about right now. None of what you're asking, even you're not even a year away. You're like maybe two years away from that even being something you should be thinking about. Like right now, you need to worry about your content. Your content is horrible. Like stop focusing on like what exact sequence of like 
events your ads need to go on and like what seasoning should i put on this turd do you think it should be like nutmeg or cinnamon or what do you think would be best on this dog turd it's dude it's it's hard for people to get that because it that embarrassment like if we're talking about youtube like yeah i can tell you i i know it's it it sucks with a podcast um i've gotten comfortable with this but the first year or two of doing this Hearing my own voice made me want to hide. Oh, it's awful. Dan, I have a question for you. How often has it happened that a band has asked for your opinion on their music, whether it's one that you work with that's demoing stuff or just some random band, whatever? How often has somebody asked for your feedback and then they came back, you know, weeks or months later or something uh, with something where they took your feedback into account and actually tried to make adjustments to their music based on what you said? Uh, <laughs> you know the answer to that. You know, that, that is very rare. Um, I, do, I, I did have kind of like an interesting situation happen a few weeks ago. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, I was part of a mentor group at a, you know, a local musician's college uh and some of the one of the bands that i was mentoring was like this pretty good band and um they were a little short on their budget um to complete their album and they were trying to figure out what to do but you know they they had the, the songs were good they were good competent musicians um they kind of figured out a way to you know uh highlight their best attributes on instagram uh which, which they were pretty good at um, and you know they made they made a good music video that really shows off their strengths and you know minimizes a lot of things that they weren't excelling at. But like you know, so it was, it was a very good kind of package. Um, so I just suggested, hey, you know, maybe instead of you know self releasing and worrying about that, like maybe now is the time to start talking to labels, which is something I never would usually say. This was just you know an outlier situation, but they did. And, you know, they, they kind of worked more on putting everything together to where the music video was complete and pristine. The audio quality of the songs that they had finished was perfect and it was perfectly mastered. And they basically had this completed album to serve on to a record label. And they did. They got two hits from, you know, real you know, top shelf record labels that are, you know, now they're talking to them and hopefully, you know, these guys will come out to see their show when they start playing again later this year. Um, so, you know, people that really want it and people that are there at that level to, you know, make the leap to you know, the next level, uh, they understand, they take this, this advice and they take it seriously. But, you know, with this particular band, it's a band that had already spent tens you know $10,000 more um investing in themselves like you know over the course of you know the 5 or 6 years that they have been a band uh they continually invested in themselves and it wasn't just oh if i talk to this manager he could you know he can break me you know break my band or you know if we had if we just had this one other thing it was none of that it was a good package i think with them they just need a little bit more encouragement. So yeah, you know, it was easy for them to take my advice and, you know, fine tune a couple things and jump right in and it worked. Um, but again, like that's a, that's a very rare situation. Uh, 
most bands that I would talk to that, yeah, and I'm not saying the ones that I work with on a management level, but, you know, if somebody were to hire me for a consultation and I was playing, hey, you know, like your, your songs are cool, but they're not, they're not memorable. If I was a fan of this style of music, I wouldn't buy your album over another bigger band that sound that you think you sound like. Um, and, you know, like people don't want to accept it and it sucks. And, you know, like I've had lots of, you know, people get ang- very angry with me and, you know, fire off shitty emails to myself or my boss or whatever. Ooh, that's but, a good move. But yeah, look, man, it's it, it, it's the <laughs> truth. Like it, w- w- with these consultations, that's, that's the break their career needed. <laughs> firing a shitty email <laughs> off to you. So they'll like send Blasco an email saying that Dan doesn't like our song or something. Yeah. Who the I fuck mean, do you guys think you are? Bet that goes over great. Yeah, no, you know, I've, ha- I've had some people complain that uh, I didn't give their music the respect that it deserved. And I'm not, look, I'm not here to disrespect anyone, but uh, if, if they're coming to me, like I'm a professional manager. Uh, so if they're coming and staying down with me, it's like they want advice on how to be a professional touring band or, you know, how to sell their merchandise online at, at a, on a professional scale and, you know, make a living selling their band t-shirts. Um, and yeah, so like sometimes you have to understand, like, I'm going to be real with you. If you're paying me, I'm not going to sugarcoat the opinion. And sometimes it is like your song isn't good or, you know, your merch designs suck. And that, that's just the, look, that's just the nature of the business. It's better you hear it from me than you have metal sucks, you know, put you on blast to tens of thousands of readers a day. I'm just imagining like the, uh, you know, um, behind the music with this band, the segment, you know, where they're asking, what was your big breakthrough? And, uh, they're going, well, <laughs> you know, one day we went by a mercenary and we played our demo for, uh, for Dan and Blasco and, uh, they gave us some pretty harsh feedback. So the first thing we did when we got back to our, uh, studio, was write a furious email telling Dan and Blasco to shove it up their asses. And that was the day everything changed for us. <laughs> At, as soon as I hit send on that shitty email, then suddenly it was like the floodgates opened and just the world was our oyster. You know what, though? Uh, <laughs> I, like, I, I, I just want to add one thing really quickly. Um, my opinion does not matter. Blasco's yeah, they don't, opinion, they like, don't have to take your opinion seriously. Yeah, you no, might be wrong. No, exactly. And, you know, I've been wrong plenty of times uh no one's opinion matters it, like no unless you, it's the music buyer unless it's you know your fan their opinion matters mine doesn't i can work with whatever is put in front of me um and i was reading you know i was reading this interesting story just a few days ago which is why i'm bringing it up that kiss the first time they auditioned for epic records uh they were shot down <laughs> which is you know which is pretty interesting considering you know what kiss ended up becoming so, you know, uh, a music industry, you know, professional, their opinion on your music isn't always the, you know, the end all be all. Um, well, my point is, I guess. Monty Connors shot down corn. Wow, really? <laughs> well, my, my point, I guess, is that I think there's a fundamental difference between rejecting somebody's opinion because you're butthurt and defensive and, and your ego is bruised and rejecting their opinion because you thought about it, you considered it, and you don't agree with it. Yeah, that's a huge difference. <laughs> Do you, you know, I find that when I have to give people advice or a mixed crit, when people disagree and get furious with me, it's usually not 
not the latter. It's usually not because they gave it some very heartfelt thought and came to the conclusion that the advice is just wrong for them. Usually, usually it's just a fit of emotion. Um, but, you know, I think that if I'm paying somebody, like, that is something I would like to buy, an honest opinion from someone I respect. That I feel like that that is something money can buy you, and that's a very valuable thing, actually, that money can buy you. And that's something that can actually help you in your career a lot. In many ways, in many ways, that's one of the best things you could do if you're looking to spend some money on advancing yourselves is pay for the opinion of someone. You know, I, I agree. Individual opinions on music don't always matter because people get things wrong. But to get the uh, some honest introspection and feedback and, like, analysis from a serious heavy hitter or, you know, someone who's far along, that's worth paying for. And that actually can help you advance. That's where I was headed with it is like, I think there's a resource out there that people are really just not taking advantage of, which is exactly what you just said. Like go find people who, you know, whose work you respect and pay them for their advice. And then, you know, as we said, you can choose to take that advice or not. Um, but I bet if you do that enough times, then the there will be some extremely clear patterns and it will be, you know, uh, I, I think it'd be pretty clear what advice you should take. I actually used to pay Blasco for his advice back when he did the consultation thing, um, which he stopped doing because bands are horrible customers for that sort of thing. But I he gave me great advice. But And there's no way that back then he would have sat there and talked to me um, for like an hour or an hour and a half on what my band needs to do to get its shit together. Why would he? Like, why, why would he why do that for Exactly. Free? No, no reason. Just to use an example again for, for myself is, you know, when my YouTube channel started to work is when, so I, we all went to Joey's wedding a month ago or whatever it was. And, uh, fluff was there, Ryan Bruce, who as anybody listening to this probably knows is a very successful YouTuber. I asked him for his suggestions. I did exactly what he said, and that is when the switch flipped. Funny how that works. I used to have a word for, and I, I forget, I don't have the word anymore, um, but this was actually what made me start charging for advice long before URM or anything. Like, this was possibly even before my band was signed, but there, but even before my band was signed, you know, I was like, pretty well known in my area because I recorded lots of bands in the area. So there were guys, a few guys who would hit me up on AOL Messenger and be like, all right, this amp or this amp, or like, you know, this or this, or I'm having trouble with this, what do I do? And I'd sit there and help them. And then 99 out of 100 times, they do the exact opposite. Just like you sit there and like take, I'd spend like two hours working through a problem with them and they would do the exact opposite. It felt almost like to spite me or something because it was it, it was such a predictable thing, yeah. and that's why I started charging for it. But I forgot what the word is for that. But it's a very common thing. I think that people, when they're not paying for advice, um, they won't take it as seriously, and they're much more likely to, you know, just take it 
and not run with it. And then totally have ended up wasting the other person's time. Well, you know, my word for those people are ask holes. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's, that's a good one. That's, that's a good one. Yes. Dan, do you do any consulting for bands, like anything like that outside of your management? I mean, yeah, you know, I was in, um, I just wrapped up my second semester as a mentor at, you know, uh, a musician's college. And over there, I mainly worked with musicians. But um, typically, like, over, you know, probably since like 2013 or so, uh, I kind of limited how much consulting I do to bands. I I still do consultation, but I work with up and coming like managers and marketers um, just, you know, for my own sanity. Uh, I've noticed that somebody that wants to be a manager is more willing to pay for their education and uh, work towards advancement than, you know, a band who's probably struggling and doesn't really have that much money. And like, uh, you know, maybe that's a shitty thing to say, but if I, you know, if I'm putting up my time and kind of helping someone along, uh, I would want to be compensated for it. So that's a, that's the switch that I made. I do still work with bands uh, on occasion. It's just, it, it hasn't been as fulfilling of an experience for me as it is working with somebody that wants to become a manager, wants to get some sort of job within the music industry. Got it. I want to loop back to something we were talking about before, because I think that we didn't totally, we didn't totally finish it out. And I do think it's important because I think people get confused about this a lot. And I know that even sometimes I get confused about it. So the idea that when do you know to put money into something you're advertising based on the following situ or situation or thought process. Um, maybe I need to put some more money into this because it's not being seen enough. If it was seen more, uh, I'm, conf I'm confident that it would pick up. It just needs more awareness and organic reach sucks. So why don't I put more money into this thing that's not picking up. However, the the wisdom, and I know that this is true, is if something's not picking up, you know, that's the kind of stuff you drop. You put the money into the stuff that already has a natural life of its own. But there becomes a chicken or the egg kind of thing with it, you know what I'm saying? So how do you, where is the line with that? Like, where do you decide when something is actually just dead in the water or what is something that really just does need a little bit of a, you know, push. Well, I think if you're talking about something like a, let's say a YouTube video, if you organically got 2000 views and you have 500 thumbs up, you know, then you're onto something. In my opinion, I'd say, okay, maybe it's time to throw some money at it because if 25% of the listeners are engaged and, you know, they're giving you a thumbs up, there could be something there. And you have to look at the numbers. So um, even if it's 200 views and 50 thumbs up? I, th I, I think 200 is too low. But once you start getting into thousands, you can start playing around with it. I mean, there's really like no one right answer. Once it starts getting into the thousands of views and you're, you know, pulling 25 to 50% 
thumbs up and positive comments and positive reaction and you know you sign into your analytics and you're seeing that you're getting hundreds of shares and people really like it and they like it enough to tell their friends and family about it then you're on to something then you know there's some sort of momentum something to tell you that now's the time to put money behind it because it could be a situation where more people need to hear it but if you're pulling 2000 views and you have you know two thumbs up and you know, it's kind of a ghost town it's not that not enough people have heard it it's just they don't care yeah i agree with that what do you think finn yeah i mean i i, I agree with that i think it's just there's a uh, some of you guys will know the term product market fit which basically means does the market like the product that you are putting out there and to me the time to 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 pull the trigger on marketing spend is when you believe that you have product market fit. And there's, as Dan said, there's no real hard and fast rule to know when you have that. But I think if you are honest with yourself, you will know when you have it and when you don't. Uh, you know, if you put out a new song or a new video or whatever, and the reaction is like basically more than you expected, you're like, wow, this is like going over surprisingly well. Well, I'd say that's the time to like potentially invest in it. Um, but if the reaction is kind of lukewarm, then I wouldn't throw your money away. And I think Dan said something, which is a really good way of thinking about product market fit, which a lot of people in the startup world say is like, do people like it enough to tell their friends about it? You know, so if you see people tagging their friends in the comments or sharing it, you know, whatever on whatever social network, like that's a sign that people like it so much. They're telling other people about it. Maybe you pour some fuel on the fire again, not for sure, but consider it, you know, maybe that's time. Okay. Then maybe you can help me unpack this situation. Cause maybe it, it's just an oddball or maybe I'm not seeing how it fits or, or whatever, but help me here. So nail the mix, definitely product market fit. It was obvious from the moment that we, from the moment that we did that, it was just an instantaneous rush. And, you know, some months are obviously better than others three years in. But, I mean, that has product market fit. And it was obvious. There was no question about it. However, we did this podcast, you know, for like nine months leading up to that. The podcast never became a viral hit or anything like that. It's not like, you know, it's not like the Tim Ferriss podcast. It, it will never be, you know, because of the niche that it's in. Well, the standard the standard isn't viral hit. It's just like, is the pop kind of surprisingly good given wherever you're at? So for Tim Ferriss, if he gets 50,000 downloads of a podcast, that's a flop. Yeah. Well, well the thing, I guess what I'm getting at is that the the podcast was always a very slow trickle especially at first, but it was, it seemed very important to keep pushing. And obviously it was the right decision to keep pushing because it led to Nell the Mix. And once Nell the Mix was there, there was this established base of, you know, supporters who immediately jumped on it that the podcast had formed. But if you look at the podcast objectively in terms of like, you know, views or whatever um downloads back then it was very very low it was you know it could almost be so low that if we were 
if we could, you know, hindsight 2020, if we, we could be looking at that now at that same scenario and be like, let's drop it. So where does that fit in? Or do you think it's an anomaly? Or do you think that it actually was showing promise in its own way? Well, I don't, I don't ever remember what the numbers were like, so it's hard for me to say. But, you know, was it a hundred for like, was there zero growth or was it slow growth? And do you think that spending money, do you think spending money on it would have made a dramatic difference? It made no difference when we did. So there you go. Um, the, the growth was kind of slow and steady. We would add from month one, we added maybe 80 to a hundred subscribers every month, you know, it, very slow. And, putting money into it or doing deals, any of that stuff, any of those marketing tricks, none of it really worked. Like the only thing that really worked was putting out more episodes and bringing on guests people cared about and just not stopping. And then, and then it all changed with now the mix, but yeah, but the advertising didn't work. Yep. Well, Dan, how often, um, how often have you seen in your career either a band or a release that seems, you know, kind of lukewarm out of the gate, but then to everybody's surprise, uh, picked up months or years later? I mean, I know it happens. But how often do you see that happen? Oh, I don't, I don't think I've ever actually seen that happen. I know um, the closest I can think of is probably the the first Asking Alexandria album, Stand Up and Scream. I think first week, uh, this is like around 2009, 2010, it sold like 2,500 albums. Uh, but they were like a brand new band. I don't think they had even toured at that point yet. If they did, it was only one tour. Uh, and it sort of slowly started growing to where we were doing, you know, 1,000 units a week, 5,000 units a week. You know, it's like big leaps. Um, and, you know, so that happened as the band were was touring and making their rounds and we were putting out music videos but I, I think that's a very rare occurrence. Um, you typically kind of know whether you have a hit on your hands. Um, and, you know, and we knew with Asking Alexandria back like when I was in the rec- at the record label, we knew that Asking was going to be big. Like they, that was a situation where this band just needed to go out and tour more and be heard. Because when we put out a compilation, everyone was talking about their track. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. so that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like you go, oh, there's something here. Yeah. So I mean, you you have it figured out, but like, there's all there's uh, been bands that have taken us by surprise too, or taken me by surprise. I think like that band Vane put out one of the best albums this year, and like they kind of, at least for me, kind of came out of nowhere. And the first time I heard it, it's like this is you know this is great. Um, and I I mean I think they did a huge number first week and really built up a lot of traction for themselves. I don't think somebody was expecting, you know, kind of a, an unknown or not as popular band to be putting up those kind of numbers in their first week. I think it was like 8,000, 9,000 uh, sales. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic for a hardcore band. Yeah. No, it's, so, uh, I mean, it's, it's rare, but like it happens, but I feel like if I was more connected with that scene, like I'm sure people knew that, this band was going to be awesome and they were hype. Yeah. And like the hate five, six kind of scene. Yeah. Like, like the, the, the people that were involved probably knew that they had a hit on their hands. I will say this about the podcast is it, even if it was small, it was loved from day one. 
So th there was that, uh, which I guess um, kind of like you're saying, like with asking Alexandria, you just knew, even if the sales weren't there immediately, you knew because there was, uh, there was enough positive reaction from the people who had heard it. The context that we're talking about here is like money and advertising and buying success or accelerating growth with money. And there are times in which, so in the podcast, what I would say is don't spend money on it because especially if you try it and it doesn't seem to make a big difference, but that doesn't mean you should give up either. Like oftentimes the right answer is don't spend money on it, on promoting it, but keep doing it. You know what I mean? Like it's not like something is either um, worth spending money on or garbage. It's not one or the other. There's lots of times where the answer is just, you know, like with asking Alexander, just keep going out on the road and it's going to build or just keep building podcast, keep making podcasts. It's going to build, but you know, don't think that money is necessarily the answer. Well, I, actually I think, uh, to what you just said, you know, over time you refine your product, you know, it, it like with a podcast, you learn, things to do you figure out what to do to you know what to do differently your product changes over time and it could just be something as simple as you need to find the right groove you know you need to find where you're comfortable and where you can do your best um so it's no different for a band or a youtuber or like a professional gamer or whatever that's trying to build their twitch channel uh you just need to find uh a lot of times where you fit in and what works for you. And it could be like, that's all that's needed to make your product something awesome that people are interested in. Yeah. I mean, much like Finn's YouTube. Yeah, they, exactly like Finn's YouTube. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be so negative as to say like, oh, if it doesn't take off immediately, then you should scrap it. Exactly. You shouldn't. You exactly. just, just refine your product, man. It takes time. Like, you know, how many how many people are recording a song and get it right on the first take? You know, it's a, it's a process. Like, like with anything creative, you're going to have a million different revisions and it's, it, it takes time, man. The, the, the days of a band breaking overnight are, I, I feel like they're done and it's in the past. You know, and also that's actually more in line with the traditional music industry. I think that back in the day, like Bruce Springsteen day or whatever, Bands usually took a few records before they had a hit. They, they were allowed to develop. That that happened a lot. There, if you look at lots of the bands from older years that are like mega bands, mega like Pink Floyd, Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, like mega, mega, mega bands. Sometimes they have like two or three albums or more before anything even happened. Like albums of crap. I, I do think there's some merit in just keeping on going. Got some questions here from, here's an interesting one uh, from Aaron Austin. Is it worth to pay for LinkedIn or pay for sites like Mandy.com or Production Hub when looking for jobs and or projects? I mean, I think with LinkedIn, doesn't it put your resume to the top? But I don't know, probably not. It depends. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the specifics of how your industry works. Like do people, do people look for, uh, your type of, I mean, in, in the example of producers, do people look for producers on LinkedIn? I don't think they do. 
I don't think you they know, do. do people, uh, I don't know about these other sites. Like what were the other ones they mentioned? Mandy.com and production. Hub. Okay. Production hub. Maybe, I don't know. That sounds like it might be LinkedIn for producers or something. It's like, so LinkedIn. So I guess my point is like the question to ask yourself with any of these things is like, um, what specifically do I think will happen when I spend money on this? Like, as we've said a million times, money doesn't just magically turn into the results you want. What specifically do I think is going to happen? Like, are the kind of people I want to work with looking on production hub for people like me? If so, um, if I spend 50 bucks to get my name to the top of the list, will that help me? You know, sometimes the answer is obvious. Sometimes it's not, but, um, I mean, it's, it's, I think probably pretty simple. Um, if you're listening to this, I, I've never heard anybody talk about Production Hub before in AL. If you're not familiar with it, I would say it's probably not relevant. Um, and a lot of time, I think people want to, I mean, we see this all the time, like when people ask about Facebook ads for their studios, lots of times people think about advertising because they don't have any other ideas. And it's just not usually the answer you know yeah that actually seems like the worst reason to yeah pay for advertisement is if you can't figure out how to get things going without it i mean in creative fields such as producing music i think 99 percent of the time like things happen through word of mouth and or networking like as i've said before has have you ever heard a producer when you're doing a podcast with and you're like well so uh machine what was what, what, you know, what was your first big break? Well, I did Google ads and then, uh, <laughs> Chris Adler was Googling for recording studios and, you know, he, uh, <laughs> he found my ad and then the rest is all downhill. Like that's not how it works. It's always like, well, I did this record and people really liked it. And then I met so-and-so at this show and one thing led to another, like that's the way it works. It's, we're in the professional services industry, not selling toothbrushes. You know, this is not product marketing. So, I mean, that's my opinion is I think it's very rarely going to help you to spend money. And, and in fact, a lot of times it might even hurt you because it looks weird and desperate and corny and it makes it seem like you're doing things differently than everybody else is doing things in a bad way. It kind of makes it seem like you don't get how business is done. You know what I mean? The only time that I've really heard of it working, like using using one of those sites for your studio or whatever is, is for like odds and ends bookings. Like some guys will like get on some of those sites just to like fill in a few dead spots in their calendar. Like some local author wants to do the audio book version of their self-published book for 300 bucks. Yeah. And if that's what you want to do, that's, you know, nothing wrong with that, but is that the kind of work? So you just think about like, if I spend money on this and it works, what is going to happen? You know, am I going to get calls from local rappers? You know, if that's if you want to work with local rappers, then great. But that's probably not what you want to do. Yeah. Or do you want to record audiobooks all day long? That, but that's that's exactly right. That is the kind of work you get. And it's not I've never met a single person who says that it's that steady. They always say that it's like five percent of their year or something. So, all right, here's one from James Kirsch. And I've got interesting opinion on this, but I want to hear Dan's opinion first. James Kirsch says, I'd like to hear their take on buy-ons for tours, please. <laughs> uh, well, I guess, there, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into making this decision. Um, 
I think it really depends on where your band is and what your expectations are for this buy-on. Um, you know, you you really need to assess why this headliner is taking out a buy-on. Is it because they know they're going to sell out every single venue and they just want to add extra money? And there's nothing wrong with that. Or is it because the tour is doing so poorly that they're taking rate reductions and they're not able to stay on the road without this extra money? Um, so you need to figure that out for yourself. And then also keep in mind that you're never going to recoup that money. I see this thrown out a lot online, like ideas for how to, for how like buy on bands can try to recoup that cost. It's not going to happen. If you can sell, you know, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 worth of merchandise on the road, you wouldn't be a buy on band. You would be, you'd be headlining, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, or you would at least be getting that tour offer, uh, normally without, paying to be there. Um, but yeah, you know, there's certain instances where it does make sense. Like if I'm a band from Australia and I'm doing well in Australia, but it's my first time in the United States and I just put out a record out here that's seemingly do that's, you know, getting some traction on Spotify or YouTube, then yeah, it could make sense to, you know, throw some dough at playing with a bigger band within that genre, um, assuming, you know, the shows are going to be sold out and the package makes sense that, you know, if I was a buy on band, I would want to be, you know, maybe first of three, not first of six. There's a lot that goes into it. So the, the, the short answer is yes, sometimes it makes sense, but it's definitely not uh, what most bands think is. It's not just write a check and then you're going to be a rock star. Uh, Writing that check to buy onto a tour is the very first step, and you're probably going to be spending double, triple that um, because you need to figure out ways to get momentum on that tour. And things like publicists are not cheap. I would just remind people, too, is that you're, you can't buy the other band's fans. So um, you can buy onto the tour, but you're definitely not going to buy their fans. And beware of the, of the big headliner that takes no real direct support and five unsigned bands for uh with buy-ons just beware that situation i know nothing about this so i'm but i'm curious about it um is there a level uh at which bands no longer do like buy-ons like is that thing that only like baby bands do or are there bigger like legit bands that also do it that's that's really just baby bands um I mean, the only time it makes sense for a more established act is if it's international. Got it. Uh, because you know that, like, there's there's something there. Um, and I mean, like, I I don't know. I've, like, I've never managed a buy-on band, but I've had other bands buy on to my acts tours, and it's usually been like an international act that had some hype in another country and some success, and it was their first time over in the United States. Um, so things like that. So it, you know, you can't just say one way or another. But yeah, I think most bands that are trying to tour in the United States, once you're able to pull in, you know, a hundred people on your own or so, you shouldn't be buying on tours. You should be getting those tour offers or, you know, you should be figuring out ways to book your own tour. Um, I guess in the case of that international band that's doing well in, I don't know, Europe or whatever, and they want to get traction here, why wouldn't they be getting those offers, you know, through a booking agent? (laughs) <laughs> that's a good question. I, I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just I'm genuinely uh, curious. 
No, I, I'm, I've gotten buy on offers through a booking agent. No, I mean, like, why if the band is doing really, really well in Europe, why wouldn't a booking agent work with them to, like, get them, you know, actual. They may just know. not have a history in the United States or they could be aiming wanting to take a bigger tour than they would normally be qualified for. Got but again, it. like, like these are, these are rare scenarios. Like the most, the most common scenario is like, there's some local band or regional band that wants to tour with, you know, their favorite band from their hyped label and they're going to pay 20 grand to do it. And it's not going to go anywhere. Like right. the, like the band on that international level, they like, you know, Booking agents probably talk, and there's like a I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of deal with the bands helping each other out. Um, there's there's things going on. But again, these are such rare occurrences. The the overwhelming vast majority of the time, it's a band that just do, can't get their own show. And so they think if they only, like if they just buy onto this, you know, whatever tour that all this band's fans are going to love them, which is is never the case. Is there any like stigma attached to that? If you're like a buy on band, does that make people respect you any less or do people not care or how does that work? Definitely care. I I think people respect you way less. Like promoters aren't going to take you seriously. Um, I feel like in 2018 with such great access to the internet and information, fans can figure out that you're paying to be there. If it's a band that they've never heard of that has no streams, no relevant traction online anywhere, and yet they're opening for this big band, do, you know, playing to a thousand people a night, like they can figure out that you paid to be there. The bands will treat you differently too. Like if you're on a package and you're the buy-on band, like they will say things like who are the, real bands on the, like if they're talking about the package, like tour manager to tour manager, they'll talk about the real bands and then the buy on band. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's rough. I, I mean, I understand like, you know, sometimes you need to do it. And yeah, if I was, if I was a big headliner and I knew I was selling at the shows and I didn't need some like support for ticket sales because I can do it on my own. Yeah. I see nothing wrong with taking on a buy on band and, helping them out. But yeah, yes, you're going to be treated differently and it's going to be much more difficult for you to cross over from being a buy on band to a band that gets tour offers. Um, and that's something a lot of people just don't take into account when writing these checks is how are you going to cross that threshold and no longer do this? Well, well, it's, it's very difficult and there's bands with bottomless budgets that buy onto every tour and years later they still have to buy onto tours because no, the, the promoters and booking agents don't see them as a real draw. You know what the hard the hard thing is? Um, I've had good and bad experiences because my band did buy onto some tours and other tours we were offered. Like some tours, like we bought onto Dragon Force and Cynic, which was right around when an album came out. It was only three thousand dollars. It's a very small buy on, and it was a great tour, and everyone treated us great. I don't even know why they needed the $3,000, but that was the price. And it went great for everybody. It was a great decision. Like, But there's been other tours where it's like you put way, pay way more and get treated like shit, and you're still playing 15 minutes after doors, and it's a pointless investment. And then the problem is one of the reasons that I think it's hard to switch over for a band is Mentally, it's a tough move because if you're buying on, you're going to get used, you're going to get spoiled by playing with bigger bands, bigger venues. And then 
when you get your own tour offers, like you might get direct support for, you know, if you're buying on for bands to play to 1,000, 1,500 people, you might get a direct support offer then non-buy on for a tour that's going to do 400 or 500 a night. Um, and it's a hard transition for bands to sometimes make. I think there's that too. They get spoiled. Yeah, yeah. Like, look, it's, it, it's tough. It's always going to be, there's going to be some weirdness around the idea of buy-ons. Um, and it depends on where the band is at. Uh, I'm really surprised to hear about the, you know, your Al's experience with Dragon Force and Cynic. That it was good or that it was that low? That it was that low. I mean, right now, right now, if you, you know, some name bands are charging, you know, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 to be first of six. And, you know, they're only bringing in 200 tickets, like ticket sales total for the night. Well, we, we have paid more. We've paid 15 grand once. Tell me what you think about this. This is my reaction. And tell me if I'm stupid. Seems to me that for $20,000, you could make several videos that would, if you did a good job of them, would probably do more for your band than that. Yeah, dude, totally. That, <laughs> that's that's without question. And, and I don't want to keep like talking shit about these buy-on bands. Because, like, again, some bands do it very well and they have a, a great strategy and they're able to jump from, yeah, you know, we did two buy-ons, but now we're doing real tours uh, so, you know, there's always exceptions, but a lot of these people just want to, you know, write on their, you know, Instagram page, share the stage with so-and-so band. And something very common, um, and it goes back to that mentality of, oh, if only people heard my band, then we would be big. We would be just as big as the bands that I look up to. It's never it's never the case. A lot of it's wishful thinking. With tour buy-ons, it's, it's such like a, a weird gray area. That unless you know exactly what you're doing and like, you know, you have a record label that's guiding you along and footing the bill for it, it's almost never a good idea. You know, Dan, it's sort of like I told the cops when they caught me uh, outside her house. I said, no, you don't understand. As soon as Demi Lovato meets me, we're going to hit it off. I just, I need. <laughs> <laughs> that's keeps a great way to put it. <laughs> so please just let me hang out here in the bushes for a couple more hours and you'll see that I was right all along. Three, three examples just to show how what different it can all be and how you got to be smart when in all overseas. So went overseas once with unearth in 2007, no buy on great experience. Um, we grew from it. Um, it was expensive of course, but no buy on. We paid 15 grand once to buy onto a Chimera tour overseas, lost our ass. It was stupid. It was just a bad thing. Um, and there was no way to know that it, we figured if it was cool with Unearth, it would have been cool with Chimera two years later. No, it was a big mistake. It, there was this one tour we were offered, Demi Borgir and Amana Marth, but it was 25 grand and uh, we got rejected for the for the money. And that one I wish we would have done. So wait, you tried to buy on and they said no? No, the label wouldn't, the, the, the label didn't believe in. What year like, was this? This was 2007. You know, I, I, I we should note that, you know, even as not too long ago as 2007, the music industry was a totally different world. Uh, yes. Like there was a, there was a major festival that you know, oh, actually a lot of them that um, I can't disclose the name, but every side stage was a buy-on, and you know we're talking about 
huge, you know, national acts mm-hmm. buying onto these side stages for six figures almost. But the record labels knew that they would recoup. This was back when people were buying albums. It's it's certainly changed a lot now that you don't have these record labels financing everything. And the idea of a buy-on has very much shifted. So you know? this tour was like, look, we know how valuable it is to be on this tour. You're going to need to pay us. Yes. And the record labels were like, uh, okay, fine. Yeah, but... Yes, yeah, but exactly. But the bands that they were cranking out were becoming gold-selling artists. Right. But again, so it worked. It worked for everybody. But yes, but this was back when people were still buying albums. Like this was, the, you know, uh, even eleven years ago, the music industry was totally different. Five years ago, the music industry was totally different. So what used to work, you doesn't always work now. And you know, if you were to say five years ago, we're only going to release uh, a YouTube only a YouTube exclusive album. Like you would have gotten laughed out of the room, but now, but you know, like now that's a that that's the move. But you can almost see how it could make sense to put that kind of money into doing a European tour with those two bands in that time period. Yeah, absolutely. Like it doesn't either. Like it doesn't seem like a totally stupid thing. Whereas fast forward to now, like like the other example I was giving. If you have a headliner that's, you know, maybe has a name but not a huge draw, and there's six local bands footing their tour bill, you know, that's that's not so cool. That's what, and I see that all the time. I, I think we've said what needs to be said about like tour buy-ons. Again, like for the people listening, you just need to take everything into account. Um, and you know what what it is now isn't the same as what it was. You know, in 2007. I mean, I, I would think in your specific example, going international with Chimera in, what, 2006, 2007, that's pretty awesome. If that was an early attempt at international touring, it makes sense. Not everything's going to land perfectly. But in this day and age, I think there's better options. Yes. All right. Here's a question from James Kirsch, which is Spotify playlists. Can spots be bought payola style? And is it worth it? <laughs> uh, as far as I know... You cannot buy spots. It's against their terms of service or something along those lines. Um, who knows if you know behind-the-scenes deals are happening. There's a lot of independent curators, and there's curators that work for record labels and curators that work for Spotify. And then I think there's even algorithms. I mean, you know, is, is it possible? Sure. Do I think it happens that often? I, I can't say. I don't know. I would guess probably not. Um, There's no official above board way of doing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I've, I've seen some people just like tweet at Spotify or tweet at popular curators, their songs. Um, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I wish I had a better answer. I don't know how like my band's songs end up on a lot of uh, playlists that, you know, may, that. It's possible they just, there's an algorithm that tells, you know, these curators that, you know, this song's getting traction, you know, it fits in with this playlist or whatever. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes, like, we know the person, we can hit them up. But other times it's just playlists that I didn't even know existed. Um, but on my end, we've never written a check to anyone at Spotify to play our song. Got it. All right, here's one from John Maysale. And this, this is a good one because... I'll explain why I do think that you should pay for this stuff. Uh, 
Events like NAM, AES, even URM Summit, why do these types of events even matter when people are a Facebook page or Instagram hashtag away? And just for listeners, like the investment here with these is, you know, a ticket in some cases, but definitely airfare, hotel, like even an event like NAM where you don't buy the ticket, it is expensive to go to. So he's wondering why does it even matter when you can just hashtag somebody? I mean, can you though? If I was talking to somebody, you know, regarding business dealings, I wouldn't message them or I mean, maybe I would message them, but I wouldn't like leave them a comment or something. Like if I'm going to NAM, it's because I'm talking to sponsors, uh, people that pay me or my bands to do a thing or because I'm trying to book some business there or we're demoing a product, whatever. Um, there's certain things that just need to be done face to face or in a more formal setting. Um, like, yeah, you know, I have something like 2000 people on Facebook, but that doesn't mean that anybody can just hit me up to, you know, listen to their song or, you know, what have you. And I wouldn't do that to somebody else. Uh, I think NAM is a great situation for someone like myself to meet the people that we email with all the time. And I, I, I don't know about, the other two, but I think these scenarios are worth paying for uh, because you need the face-to-face interaction. It's not like NAM specifically is not open to the general public. You're meeting with people within your industry that are relevant to your interests, if that makes sense. I think it's important to say that with these, you're not buying or attempting to buy relationships, which you can't do. All you're doing is buying yourself the access to an event or you know the the plane ticket to get there or whatnot. You're not you're not trying to like pay for a friendship or something like that, or pay to make your band bigger in a way that you can't. And nothing beats face to face, in my opinion. There there's a reason for why in the real business world people still fly to meetings. Yeah, there's, there's nothing quite like a face to face meeting or introduction or anything that it, it's very easy to ignore a message or a comment. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult when they're standing a foot away from you. So definitely worth investing in. In my opinion. Yes. I know you agree, Finn. I do. I mean, well, there's a couple things I would poke at there is one, um, as Dan said, like online relationships and IRL relationships work together like they reinforce each other. So like if you meet somebody at NAM, then you follow them on social media, you exchange contact information and you grow that relationship online. Or if you meet somebody online, then you say, Hey, are you going to be at NAM? Let's meet up. And either way, like as Dan said, the fact that you've met that person face to face makes that relationship so much stronger than a digital relationship ever will be. That's just the way human beings are wired you know, just to be really specific about like NAM in particular or the URM summit tickets are still available. <laughs> uh, anything like that, where there's a barrier to entry, whether that's financial or just the pain in the ass of getting there or whatever, um, like the VIP section or an awards show or something that might be free, but it's, you still got to find a way. Well, okay. So all the show, all the, uh, all the private shows at NAM. So for anybody who doesn't know, there's, you know, a number of like shows that happen around NAM that are all free, but you got to find a way to get a ticket and there's, you know, they go fast. If you have put yourself, if you have jumped through whatever hoops to put yourself there, that says something about you. 
like you're in the same club as the other people who are there. And that doesn't guarantee anything for you. But I don't know if you're, you know, at the same party as fill in the blank people that you admire. What do you think? And somebody sees you there. What do you think that does for their perception of you? Definitely doesn't hurt it. Right. So to me, it's just like all these things are just like people looking for shortcuts and like, why would you not do it? What do you think? Do you think it helps to be at these industry events or do you think it hurts you? I think it helps you. I mean, it's just people want to hear what people want to hear is, no, you don't have to go to these. You can do everything from behind the computer. Just pay, put money into the Facebook machine and success will come out the other end. But that's not how it works. So get off your ass and go to these events and get out of your shell and go meet people. Like, I don't think, Dan, maybe you're different, but I don't think anybody on this podcast necessarily loves being around crowds of people and like talking and shaking hands for 15 hours straight. But we do it because without exception, it's always worth it even though it's tiring and exhausting and frustrating and annoying, it's worth it. And I just learned it again yesterday when I went to this Facebook event. Um, and I had that same dread <laughs> I always do when going into a crowd of strangers. But as always, so worth it. Like no, nobody likes going to Nam after the first one. And if they do, they probably have a Coke problem. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so nobody likes doing it, but everybody does it anyway. So what does that tell you? Actually, I've got a question for you guys. Was, was this question in regards to like, uh, networking at these events or just attending in general? I mean, aren't they one and the same kind of, well, they are for me. No, well, I don't, mean, you, don't, don't go to NAM for any reason other than networking, I guess. Well, if we're, if we're talking about these, you know, these three specific examples in terms of networking, they're great, but there's lots of other networking opportunities that totally suck. Okay. I wanted to get into that because of that post you made yes. about networking events since we're on this topic. But first, let me just say real quick that my, my career has grown, I guess, immeasurably from good networking. And there was, I don't always go to every NAM, you know, I go maybe every other year, but there was a time period where I went every single fucking year and I'd go to Golden Gods whenever I possibly could. And every single industry event I could go to, I would go because um, my, like my survival at that point, I felt depended on keeping those relationships going or building new ones. I mean, I still think it's really, really important, but the, you know, I also have a super busy schedule, so I can't do it as, like I used to, but um, minimum of every two years, I'm going to go to these. And I think it's fucking crucial. However, I do remember you made a post about quote unquote networking events being total bullshit. And so I want to, let's, yeah. let's talk about that. What did you, what did you mean? So, um, again, we need to draw a, a distinction between the events you are going to where there, you know, music industry events where there's people there that can actually help you move your career along. Like, yes. Um, myself also, when I was starting out, I would go to, you know, most of the parties, all of the shows I'd, have still never missed, you know, a NAM or a warp tour kickoff party or anything like that. But that's because I knew that there was people that I do business with that would be there. 
And yes, I understand that they need to see my face and I need to keep those relationships going um, because if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. Um, but again, the, this is when I'm s- starting out, but, you know, even a little bit more into present day. Um, but these are not the networking events that I'm talking about. Those happen every once in a while. And, you know, you know, when there's a golden gods happening that, yeah, you should probably go or like a revolver awards or AP awards, you know, it's a good idea to attend if you can. Um, but I get, you know, emails all the time for, you know, the music industry happy hour with like a bunch of people who I don't know that it's like, to- that, you know, their jobs and what they do, it's totally irrelevant or, it's an opportunity for like they pitch as an opportunity for me to meet, you know, local musicians and things like that. And I'm not oh, putting yay. what a treat. It sounds, sounds yeah, fun. It's like, I'm not putting it down, but like it's lame. And I know that, I, yeah, sure. I get the free invite, but these musicians that are going to meet, trying to meet me or other managers or book agents or whatever, they're paying to be there. And they're not going to get anything out of it. Like no manager or booking agent I know is going to pick up a band based off of meeting them in a bar that they paid to be there for. Like that's, that's not how this business happens or at least not on any sort of legitimate professional level with people that you would want to be working with. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I guess I, I should have been more clear in my post that there is a distinction, but most of these events where people are paying and like it promises you success and all these things are going to happen. It just, it, it isn't true, man. Like there's basically they're stealing your money and like the promoter of it may have some connections or whatever, but just because they're promising that certain industry people are going to be there, that can change your life. That doesn't mean that they're going to be there. Or even if they are, they're probably not going to change your life, man. I, 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 I hate sounding so negative on this podcast, but there's just there's so much clutter and fluff out in like the music industry world. And this is just one of many examples of things out there like to take advantage of, you know, up and coming bands that just don't know any better. Uh, and again, this is this all goes back to them thinking, oh, if I just meet the right person, everything will happen for me, which is true Man, or could I be totally true, but it probably you. won't happen at this event. Right. And I just want to put it out there. Uh, bands listening, when you have an awesome product, we will find you. There's a, there's a, a Los Angeles band that I am heavily courting and going after and bugging all the time. Uh, they've, they weren't the ones that pitched me like, a, you know, a friend told me about them and from watching them play a local show and it's been on ever since. Uh, and that's how business happens. Somebody tells you about a band, you check them out, and you're blown away by it. Um, it wasn't them paying to you know meet me at a brunch. Yeah. <laughs> there was this conference in Atlanta, which really used to bug me. I don't think it goes on anymore. It's called the Atlantis Music Conference. It's kind of like a wannabe South by Southwest, uh, probably before South by Southwest. Uh, and they took over a couple clubs, three or four clubs, and bands had to pay to play the Atlantis Music Conference with the idea that industry professionals were going to be there and uh, and get them somewhere, you know, get, that they were going to make their career. And not a single band ever got signed out of Atlantis Music Conference. I remember one year they put my band on it 
like they just falsely advertised us. I sent the owner a really angry letter to don't fucking advertise us with this shit. But um, but if that's the kind of event you're talking about, I wholeheartedly agree. It's that's just a ploy to get bands to spend money. Yeah, you can't you can't compare stuff like that to, uh, you know, your URM Academy or to like Nam or things that uh, have a high level of respect that you know these professionals are going to be there and that things happen from people attending. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying. Um, and I totally, totally agree with you, man. These events should be avoided like the plague, as far as I'm concerned. Nothing happens at them except for musicians, you know, wallets getting lighter. So Robin Diamond says, I have never bought Facebook followers before, although I know people that have, and they've become very successful with their social media platforms. Also, it's been very clear in some cases where bands who've just been signed by a major label and their fan base increased by 20,000 within a day. Is it still relevant to buy fans to increase your overall reach? Uh, I'm going to say no, and I don't think that has happened. Buying Facebook followers hasn't really been a thing, you know, probably in like eight years. But let me unpack all of this as, as best as I can. On the idea of buying followers, your follower number means nothing, you know. Like especially now, if you're putting out a post, the algorithm is going to dictate who sees it and who doesn't, and you're going to want to get in front of live people that might actually like your band, not a bot or like some click farm somewhere else. Uh, so you got to keep that in mind. You know, you're going to want four thousand real diehard, you know, actual fans than four million bots that do not exist. And you know, years and years ago, once like the social media companies started picking up on this tactic that, you know, some people were buying likes or views or whatever. They started deleting them. Like Facebook, Twitter, they killed off these accounts and they, they still do. YouTube had a huge purge and I think they got rid of 2 billion fake views in just a couple of days uh, going from the major labels. It's like, dude, that's not, if this is... If this is part of your marketing strategy, you need to hit the restart button and come up with something else. Your numbers don't matter. What matters is how those numbers interact with you. I have a very hard time believing that whatever band he's thinking of that bought likes developed a really successful social media career because of those likes. Right. And actually, I have the perfect example for this. Going back to Ask Alexandria, when I was working with them at uh, when I was at Sumerian Records, they blew up um, after uh, a South by Southwest showcase. There's a video footage of it on YouTube. Like people that couldn't get in, like started like rioting. It was massive, and like every media publication that was there started covering this band. And we were doing, you know over 100,000 new Facebook ads a day, or for new Facebook likes a day. And this happened for you know, quite a few weeks. To say 100,000 a yes. day? Yes, and this was like 2011. Jesus Christ. Yeah, this was huge. But again, like Ask Alexandria that year was the most talked about band at South by Southwest. You know, their show, like their, the videos of their showcase went viral. Um, and you know, there, there were people that couldn't believe that this band that they didn't like 
uh, was getting this kind of coverage. So, yeah, you know, it must have been fake. We must have paid, you know, whatever, uh, OC Weekly or, you know, Alternative Press to be talking about this band. Or we must have bought these Facebook followers. There's no way that they can be doing this. Um, but I'm here to tell you, like, that was real. And I like I wish there was a way to throw money at it to recreate it. But it's just not like these these this audience was really that into that band and the writers were that impressed by what was happening so like you may think like oh a band had twenty thousand followers after a big announcement that it must be all bought or it must be the record labels doing no i mean you don't know where the like unless you're auditing everything and looking at the trail and seeing what it is you don't know where they came from. Like it could be 20,000 YouTube listeners that discovered their music video. I think he's got it backwards. I think he thinks that the band got huge because of the announcement. When in reality, the announcement happened because the band was getting huge. Oh yeah. So that's a, (laughs) that's a much better way to put it. Yes. Well, he's got it backwards. I think that's, that's really what it is. And I want to clarify something too, about buying likes on Facebook. You can't, Finn, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't buy likes. If you're promoting your page in order to get likes, uh, all you're doing is paying for an ad that shows up in people's feeds that shows them that your page exists. And, you know, either they like it or they don't. But you're not paying, you're not buying a like. Well, there are like, there are um, people who will sell you they have a bot that does it, you know, but that's not, um, that's against the TOS. So that could get your page shut down. It's a really bad idea. You should not ever do that. I, I, I meant through the official, like when it says promote this page. It's not like you can just give Facebook a thousand dollars and they'll give you X number of, you know, likes out of it. The other thing is if you're asking this question about Facebook, and I mean this with all due respect, so I don't mean to be harsh, but if you're asking about buying Facebook likes in 2018, um, I think that you uh, are a couple years behind the times in social media. And so I would encourage you to do some research on, you know, where things are at in social media now, because I think you are um, I think you're thinking about things that were relevant a few years ago. So if you want to use social media to market your band, then I think you need to do a little bit more research. And uh, Punk Rock MBA has some really good stuff for them, yes, it does. by the way. And so specifically, the reason I'm saying that is because um, Facebook is not as relevant, not nearly as relevant now as it was even a couple years ago for anybody. Uh, the larger point is social media changes all the time. I mean, at URM, we revise our tactics and strategy on social media, I would say every couple months because it changes. Um, the uh, A platform that's hot this year may be, you know, irrelevant next year, like Snapchat, for example. Um, and so if you want to use social media to promote your stuff, which for a band you probably do, then you need to like invest some time in staying on top of where the action is and how to be part of that. And Facebook followers are not where the action is right now. And I can tell you that we do spend a lot of time studying this um, with different different parts of it, but we all do spend quite a bit of time learning about where shit's going. It's crucial. Stuff that even last year worked yep. doesn't work anymore. For example, like if you've, if somebody made a comment about this on our page, I'll just mention it here is, so you may have seen, you know, we post clips of Nail the Mix uh, and other stuff, uh, other video clips on our Facebook. 
And the performance, a great example. Yeah, the performance of those is like ten percent of what it was. I don't know, six months ago. Like it used to be, if we post, like if we posted a Kurt Ballou video six months ago or a year, you're talking about Facebook specifically. Exactly, specifically Facebook. If we posted a Kurt Ballou video on Facebook a year ago, it would have gotten, let's call it, 300 shares, and now it gets five. So that's what I'm saying. That so my point is, like, it, to use social media effectively, you need to always be aware of what's working, what's not working, and adjust accordingly. And if you're asking about buying Facebook followers in 2018, that means you know you have some work to do to 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 catch up with where things are at. Let me clarify one thing. The the person who left the comment was basically saying what happened to all the quality free content you guys used to put out. Like you just put memes out on this page now. I thought, what happened? Like, do you guys not care anymore? Yeah, and the answer is um, the vi- peop- no. The answer is the the videos were no longer performing, and as of now, the memes we put out get way like literally ten or fifty times better engagement than videos do, and that's not our choice. That's just what the Facebook algorithm and the audience currently favors. If that ever changes, then we will adapt accordingly. I would actually prefer it. I would prefer to post uh, educational stuff and get traction from it personally. I would prefer to put substantial content out there. But, you know, we just uh, we all just have to play by the rules of the game. And right now, the rules of the game are favoring the memes over the videos. So that's why we are doing it. And if you are in a band or you have a project project of any kind, that's the name of the game is just figure out what's working right now and do it. But the beauty of the situation, though, is it's not like we stopped putting that stuff out. We just moved it to YouTube. Exactly. We have like we're now putting out probably almost 10 times as much content on YouTube and we're getting a lot of traction there because that kind of content is currently working great on YouTube and working badly on Facebook. So whereas before it was the opposite, we used to put more time and energy and money into Facebook now we have sort of moved that time and energy and money into YouTube because that's currently working better for us. Um, we have never really been able to get Instagram to work great. Maybe that's because we don't have the right idea. Maybe that's because Instagram just isn't a great fit for the kind of you know company that we are as opposed to like a fashion business or something where Instagram is going to work great and YouTube isn't going to work great. So, so I guess this kind of gets back to what you were asking, Al, about people, or you mentioned earlier about people asking extremely detailed questions and missing the big pictures. And I, I don't mean to beat up whoever asked this question. I, that's not my intent at all. Um, what you need to do rather than like worry about these tiny little details, make sure that you understand the big picture first. And the big picture is understand where you can get the most return on investment of your time and money and energy on social media. If that is, is that, and so like, is that even on Facebook at all? You know, these are the questions need to be asking before you worry about extremely specific detailed questions. That's like, that's like for Mixer asking like, Hey, what's the best widener? And you're like, well, hang on a minute. You don't even know how to like EQ a guitar. You need like, let's not worry about the widener yet. The, thank you. Um, that's a great way to put it. That's a great example. Here's a question on the Punk Rock MBA page for you, Finn, um, from Cameron Ken. And I want to ask this because he actually asked if it was relevant, and I actually think it is, and I know that you're very opinionated on this. Um, 
He says, I know Finn's opinion on college, but what does he think about the cost benefit of graduate school or other advanced degrees, provided they're not for something like law or medicine or some kind of hard science where it's required for a career? Uh, well, what do you guys think? For recording? Don't waste your time. What would you think if, um, let's say you were a studio owner or a band or whatever. Well, let's say you're a studio owner. You know, let's say you were a successful, well, I mean, you are a successful producer, but let's say that was like your, you know, your gig, that you are a machine or a Will Putney or something like that. And someone said, I would love to work for you. Um, my qualifications are, the, you know, uh, I've done this and this. I don't have a lot of accomplishments, but I do have a graduate degree in guitar performance or, you know, composition or something like that. How would that, what would your perception of that be? Um, neutral. I guess, because it does, still doesn't tell me much, uh, because I've known plenty of people who have gotten music degrees who are horrible musicians. Now, if they had an advanced degree in business, that might <laughs> that I might take more seriously, um, even if they were coming for a job for me at the studio. But if the only criteria was I have an advanced music degree, it'd be like, okay, um, I still need to, still need to hear the goods. Still, you know, nothing would change. You still need to go through all the exact same steps, and there's, they'd have no advantage with me, um, unfortunately. I've met plenty of people who have gone to school for music or audio, who are total, you know, deadweights, and plenty of people who haven't, who are brilliant to where I just don't think it makes a difference. Now, like I said, if they graduated with some advanced business degree or like John Douglas went to Georgia Tech and did something very brainy, I forget what it is in computer science. So clearly it's very relevant if you don't even remember what it is. It was computer science. But that that impressed me actually. And it it gave me confidence that he would be able to to handle the I guess the technical the technical computer shit that I was gonna be throwing at him. So master's master's degree in computer science means that you believe he's capable of doing vocal edits. Yes. So I did, so there you go. I don't think that's a great ROI. I think you can just learn how to edit vocals. So Dan, how about if somebody wanted to work with you and they, you know, laid their uh well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know, and one of the things on the resume that you saw was that they say had a master's in education. How would that? Uh, how would you perceive that? Yeah, I think I think it would be neutral. Also, I mean, there's certain ones that you know would definitely pique my interest. Like if somebody had an accounting degree, or you know, a, a law degree, so something that you know can either make us money or save us money. You know, as a company, then yeah, you know, that would be a positive, but if someone just has, you know, comes in wanting to work in social media and they have, you know, an English degree or something like that's cool. Like I a would graduate think, degree. That's what he's asking about specifically is about graduate degrees, not even just undergrad. Uh, you know, it's like, I, I would maybe think like, you know, that this person is at least motivated. Maybe dude, you know what? It might, it might, it might work against I, them. That's how I feel. I might think that they're the perpetual student type. A dilettante. Yeah, who are not willing to jump in the ring and risk what you need to risk in order to make it in music. So that, honestly, I might be thinking that. I noticed yeah. a, a pattern at the, the last company I worked at, which some of you will be familiar with. Um, 
that a large person. So in, in the, at that company, the people who are kind of the at the um, you know the entry level are the production assistants. So the same as a PA in a studio would like, I don't know, grab that cable and bring it over here or whatever. Those people had the highest percentage of master's degrees other than like the engineers. Uh, and they were always in like humanities and film and stuff like that. And uh, I, it's exactly what AL said is um, I think a lot of those people, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but I guess I am. <laughs> think a lot of those people like, you know, it's easier in some ways to sign up for, you know, uh, two years of school than it is to like, you know, face the very real possibility of failing by actually trying to do the thing. You know, if you were in school, the expectation is always that you're learning, not that you're doing it, you know? So I think a lot of people hide in school to avoid the pressure of trying to do it. And I'm not anti, I, I'm, probably more college than both of you guys put together, but, uh, graduate degrees in the humanities, in my opinion, are a, almost a red flag, unless it is somebody that works in that field. Meaning you've, you've done more college than both of us. No, no, I mean, put together. no, 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 no <laughs> that's not true. I mean, just like I, I probably, I probably have a higher opinion of college than both of you guys do. You, you've got a pretty healthy opinion of it. Yeah. I think college is great. But I have an extremely so just to frame this, but I think graduate degrees in humanities. So in other words, graduate degrees in anything that isn't like, you know, technology or business or anything else like that that would have a hard, you know, where you would learn a hard skill um, is almost almost at best neutral and probably leans a little bit towards negative to me for all the reasons you guys said. I think for me, would that degree come with internship? Like what kind of relevant work experience do they have? If it's uh, because that thinking on myself, that's the first thing I look at is what have they done and what can they do? Yeah. Is that, what is what does a master's degree in um, Russian literature tell you other than the fact that the person might be able to chat with your relatives? <laughs> yeah. See, like they might be able to chat with Joel. See, like not much. But if they had a one year long internship at Metal Blade Records, then, you know, that's probably going to move the resume up to the front of the, the front of the pile. And you don't need a graduate degree to intern at Metal Blade. No, as a matter of fact, if they had zero college and a one-year internship at Metal Blade, they'd probably be ahead of the pack for me, ahead of someone with an advanced degree, unfortunately, sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, you know, again, it's like college and Facebook. There's so many of these things that people are always looking for a cheat code. And I have done the same thing. Like I used to think if I got an MBA that somehow like the doors would open for me. And I asked my old boss about it. And I was like, what do you think if I get it? And he was a successful entrepreneur, no bullshit kind of guy. And I was like, so Matt, what do you think if I got um, an MBA? And he's like, well, you can do it if you want. Just don't expect anybody to give a shit. And I was like, wow. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Okay. You're right. And I didn't do it. Um, and so I just think there's all these things that people are looking. They're, they're always looking for this thing. The same as in recording. Well, what's the secret to good recordings? Well, there aren't any. You just got to like learn the craft and it's going to take a long time. And there's no real shortcut other than, you know, listening and asking questions and stuff. And it's the same thing for like any of these things. There's no, you know, with with few, there are some things in which they're a necessary condition to like you know, if you want to be a doctor, you have to go to medical school. But, 
you know, for most things in creative fields, like you just got to do the fucking thing and get good results. If you do it and you have, as you guys both said, if you can throw your portfolio down on the table and say, here's what I've done and your work is clearly good, then that's going to open all the doors you want, period. Yeah. Based on what you were just saying, here's a question from Kirk Wells. I think it follows nicely. What's one of the biggest mistakes you see entrepreneurs making when starting out their businesses? Uh, well, <laughs> but I know you have an opinion on this lack of focus. That is what I would say. And I'm not the only person that says this is a very classic thing because entrepreneurs, I agree. Entrepreneurs by nature, you know, they want to, they get excited about new ideas and they are, um, risk seeking or risk tolerant people who will, you know, like get excited about an idea and throw themselves into it, which is great. But, um, that same personality type also means that they, you know, probably are more, they, they get easily distracted by new ideas rather than finishing the ones that they've started. And so you see a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, get halfway through one idea and then take on another one and then do the same thing eight times in a row. And now they've got eight halfway done projects and none of them are getting executed very well. So that's, that's the biggest thing I see is like just the, and it's hard, I understand, but the, the, um, unwillingness to say no to an exciting idea and focus on executing the one you already have. I got to say, Finn, that's one of the things I appreciate the most out of having you in my life is that lesson because it's huge. And I see it much more now that people are asking me for advice, like people who are starting their own entrepreneurial ventures and like they have success minor success or medium success with one thing and they're ready to do the next before the before their main idea is even like halfway cooked you know super solid you know like they're ready to like start the side hustle and it's like what are you doing and, and I can see it clearly now because you hammered that into me and I, I know I still do it but I think I do it way less than I used to I'm way more aware of it and it's not like me shitting on anybody telling you to like you know, um, not trying to rain on the parade. It's just that it's such a common pattern that think about it this way. It's like, you know, it's hard enough to fight one guy, let alone to fight four guys at once, you know, focus on knock the first guy out. Then you can start the second fight, but just like taking on another fight, you're just setting yourself up for failure and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be unhappy because execution is everything as we all know. And, um, just don't set yourself up by, for failure by taking on more than you can actually execute. Yeah, exactly. Bobby Ballow asked a few questions, and I'm going to rephrase one of them here because Bobby is long winded. Make it relevant. Bobby's long winded, and I, I feel like he deserves at least one answer. Yes, but we love Bobby. Oh, yeah, we do. In terms of determining the ROI on something that you're investing money in in terms of marketing campaign online ads whatnot um or in just judging the overall roi or success of a campaign do you think that there's some metrics that are overvalued or misleading and if so which ones so he's asking just like how do you value the roi of any any idea in general M more like what are the metrics that w that are stupid to be paying attention to when you're trying to de determine overall ROI. ROI means what? What are you investing? 
money, I right. think. So then how much money, if you put in a dollar, how much money just comes out the other end is the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Now, there's lots of other metrics in between that will determine how much money comes out the end, but that's the only thing that matters in an ROI. So there's like, you can look up how to do a net present value calculation. You know, that's at the end of the day what it's all about. If I spend a dollar on this, will I get more than a dollar back within whatever period of time I deem acceptable? That's the only thing that matters. So to be specific, I think the place where people um, go wrong is by setting a goal. So let me just be super clear. Set a goal. If you're like an entrepreneur, if you're a producer or something like that, all your goals should be expressed in terms of dollars. Your goal should never be get 5,000 Instagram followers or um, you know, get four new clients or anything like that. It should always be in terms of dollars because everything else is just a means to get to that end of making money. So your goal should be um, rather than get 5,000 Instagram followers, it should be make $5,000 or whatever the number is off of engineering or make $3,000 off of vocal editing or whatever it is that you do. Or if you're in a band, it should be like, you know, sell X number of t-shirts, you know, or well, I know it shouldn't be a solid X number of t-shirts. It should be make X dollars off of merch in the next six months. And then you can figure out how to get their X dollars of profit, whatever, because everything else Everything other than like money is just a, 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 a an abstraction, just a like a proxy to get there. So, you know, that is my answer. I don't know. Does that answer the question? I think so. And just in case he's unaware, a lot of those are referred to as vanity metrics. Right. I mean, just think about what that means. And then he says, uh, so the metrics don't look great for a marketing campaign. Do you abort and redesign? the targeting strategy or let it finish and then collect and analyze the data? Well, um, as I recall, Bobby does something. What does he do? He does something technical. I forget what it is. I'll answer it in his terms first, which is you, you want to establish st statistical significance. National Research Council postdoctoral research fellow. That's right. Fellow. So, he, you, know, you know, if you have a PhD like he does, then you know what statistical significance is um, and you know why that's important. If you don't know what that means, the answer is um, it's uh, it, that's a, a, a good question to ask that rarely has a clear answer. Um, but I will say, you know, so basically that's just the question you need to ask yourself is like, should we let this thing play out a little bit longer or is it a, or is it dead in the water and do we just cut bait and move on? And I think it rarely has a clear cut answer. Um, or oftentimes doesn't have a clear cut answer, but that's just the question you have to ask yourself. You just ask yourself, if we let this play out another week or whatever, is there a reason why it would change? You know, if, if it's still possible for this thing to turn it around, let's let it play out. If not, then let's just kill it and save the money. But it's, you know, tough question to answer. Last question. We'll end this thing. It's from Danny Wallen. And this is for both of you guys. Do you think business cards are still effective to invest in or do paid ads do a better job knowing that ads can't be left on the floor like business cards? I mean, I don't buy ads for myself for like the Dan Serif manager. Um, so it's Don't? Yeah. What? Uh, <laughs> oh my God. That's why you're such a loser. God. Yeah. I, I was wondering why, but now yeah, I know. I mean, look, uh, well, on the topic of business cards, um, I've got what kind of generally an unpopular opinion like i have them but i don't like giving them out 
Um, I, and you know, my, my typical excuse, if somebody asks me for one is like, Hey, you know, go green. We don't do business cards. You know, I think there's a common theme with these questions and just something I've noticed in general, which is that a lot of people are searching for, it's not just that they're searching for the quick fix, which they are, but deeper than that, they're searching for something outside of themselves, um, to solve this for them. I feel like that's I, like when we break it all down. I feel like the majority of these questions are coming down to someone wanting to be handed a solution, uh, which they don't have to personally create. And unfortunately, every single one of these things pretty much is, has a solution, but you need to create it yourself. Okay, so it's now two days later after the original conversation that myself, Dan Surif, and Finn McKenty had about what you can and can't buy in terms of success. And we were talking about it, and we felt like the episode was maybe a little incomplete because while we did cover a lot of things that you can't pay for, we wanted to also talk about, you know, what you can do, even if you don't have money, like what actually does work these days. So, you know, Finn, you were telling me about a lot of these DIY rappers that are kind of paving their own way. Yeah. So I've, I've been kind of interested in that scene over the past year or two as it's emerged as to me, like it's obviously a different genre, but to me, it encapsulates so much of the same like attitude as DIY punk and hardcore, which is what I grew up on. And I think you know, largely where Dan grew up. And so even though it sounds different, like to me, it just instantly resonated with me because it, they operate the same way as the bands that I grew up on did. And, you know, back then in the hardcore and punk world, like nobody thought about getting signed or getting a booking agent or anything like that, because it was just like, I mean, I didn't know what a booking agent was until I was probably like 29 or something, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> So nobody worried about that stuff because we it just wasn't even in our frame of reference and nobody ever thought that it would get anywhere. But, you know, it did as, you know, for example, bands like Converge and Dillinger and, you know, all the other bands, you can Black Dahlia Murder, you know, all the other bands that you can think of every time I die that came out of that scene that became very successful, um, you know, without ever intending to play by the rules and we've seen so that you can look at what all those bands did you can also look now um you know but that was of course pre-internet or pre-internet as we know it but now uh, i think the um the the place to look is what all these diy rappers are doing like there's the soundcloud like tattoo white guy rappers and then there's you know more of the you know asap rocky kind of scene as well and to me there's just so much to learn from all that that I guess my takeaway would be rather than focusing on what you can't do. And, you know, I feel like, as you said, maybe we were a little bit negative uh, earlier, you know, maybe it'd be good for us to talk about what some of these people are doing. That's so inspiring and, you know, what we can learn from them and, and how we can do things, focus on what we can do instead of what we can't do. Well, what do you think is working about what they're doing and what are they doing? Well, one thing is they put out a lot of fucking content, just like nonstop. And so for I example, have noticed that. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's one, um, there's a, uh, 
let me find there's a there's a YouTube channel. I think it's called Demon Asastri or Demon Asatri that's like basically um the they put out a new video like literally every day from some like, you know, SoundCloud, like I call them MySpace rappers because they remind me of like the MySpace kids. They put out a new video from one of those kids like literally every day. And they're so fresh and creative and I can tell their budget. Like there's one of them where he's like in a parking garage and, you know, he's just kind of dancing in this parking garage with a cool edit. And there's literally a, a frame that flashes up that says, we shot this in 10 minutes and my girlfriend edited it in iMovie, LOL. And it's a fucking cool video, you know? And like, that's an example of like, to me, that's so inspiring because it's just proof that like, if you have a good idea and like you have passion and you're excited, like budget is not a factor And the video has, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand views. It's not massive, but it's not nothing. I think most of us would be excited to have a couple hundred thousand views. Why does the parking lot work for him, but a metal band can't get a break in a warehouse or a parking lot? <laughs> they could if it was done in a cool way like that. Like, it's not just him rapping in a parking garage. It's him rapping in a parking garage with a cool edit and he's dancing in a cool way. You know what I mean? And so that's like, I think the that that's the twist. I mean, this is what I always talk about is what's the twist, you know? Dancing or playing in a parking garage on its own is not enough, but playing in a parking garage and you're all wearing um, horse costumes. Well, that's a video, you know, I mean, I always talk about these examples of in these like gimmicky ways. I'm not saying everything should be a gimmick, but my point is like, what's the twist? You know, you know, one thing I have noticed about the amount of content they put out and I just noticed this from what you've shown me is you know, there'll be hundreds of songs that have, you know, a decent, almost to low end of decent play count. And then there will be like three or four that are just like 10 million in the stratosphere. Yeah. It definitely seems like they're like putting as much as they possibly can out in hopes that they do get those few tracks that go crazy. There's there's another thing that I guess I should mention specifically about videos. And I've been talking a lot about videos lately. And by the way, I'm sorry if I'm talking so much. But the reason I've been focusing on videos so much is because I think for musicians, whether you're a rapper or a band or whatever, I think that's the single, in my personal opinion, and I'm talking out of my ass, Dan actually works, manages bands, so he knows better than I do. But to me, you know, as a consumer and an outsider, to me, music videos seem like the best way to really put yourself on the map. And I think right now these rappers are making the best music videos. And the the so you asked, and it was a good question, why is it okay for him to have a parking lot video? And I think what they do really well is they capture a vibe. Um, and that's why it works. So like I'm looking at this video right now by this artist. You guys can Google it if you want. It's a, a rapper called Global Dan like dancer and the song is called for a reason and it's them like rapping in like a it's like a a, a a abandoned house basically the most cliched setting you could think of but they capture a vibe so well of being that kind of like disaffected like 19 year old that's like well what the fuck am i going to do with my life you know and if you can capture like ultimately that's what it's about is like connecting emotionally with the audience and you don't necessarily need a big budget for that, right? Uh, you absolutely don't need a big budget for that. 
I'm looking at this video now. Definitely not high budget. It's so weird, though, man. Like, when you see low... I guess it is down to the idea, because you see some metal videos that are extremely low budget, and it's just like, God. I guess you're right. It does come down to the idea, because you see so many zero-budget metal videos where it's like, why do you even make this? Right. Like, how... Like, but do you see what I mean about, like, I'm sure you personally don't identify with this vibe but you can see why somebody else might. Yes, absolutely. You know what? I, I, I want to jump in and just um, add a little something to this. Um, I actually haven't thought about the that scene's music videos until this very conversation. But um, immediately kind of the, the idea that it's authentic comes to mind. Like this yes. uh, rapper kid can probably pull off that garage music video because he's probably doing that. Like he probably performs in a garage, you know, he like, that's his Friday night is he's probably having these, you know, battles or whatever with his buddies. Whereas a lot of these metal bands, especially the ones that are worried about the topic of uh, buying success or how to land a booking right. agent or whatever, they're not, they're, they're not hanging out at the street level. Like they're not doing anything to promote themselves or their project um, on that gorilla level. And they're not connecting with audiences or, you know, kids or whatever, the same way that these underground rappers are. I mean, this scene, the, the backbone of that scene is like house parties and backyard parties and yeah. skate parks and like the shit that I grew up on. Like that's a that's how I discovered so many of my favorite bands was going to like hardcore shows and, you know, in the back of a skate park or in the back of a record store or whatever. And that's what these guys are doing. Like these metal bands, you know, they're worried about pay to play and buying onto tours. Right. And, like, and these dudes just want to perform in front of five people. Right. Do you remember, um, you remember the Zabalba video for that song cold? Yes. Like, so Al, I don't know if you saw this, it came out maybe five years ago. I did not, like but I'm going to look it up now. It's uh, Z I B A L B A. It's basically, you know, they're Mexican dudes from Pomona. So it's them fucking having a rager at one of their apartments in Pomona. And I'm, you know, aside from whatever the damage deposit was to their <laughs> that they lost to that apartment, like it didn't cost them a penny. And it's a fucking awesome video. And it has a lot of views for a band in their genre. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, and Sebulb is the kind of band that, you know, plays at that level um, that would that you could catch at like a backyard party. Yeah. You know, like like it, it's very it's very strange to say this, but like, uh, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. There's like a killer backyard party ska scene out here and you know who's that whoever said like ska's a popular genre like that hasn't been culturally relevant in probably like at least 20 years but you go to these backyard shows and there's you know 200 kids there you know, to see some like random third wave ska band or like some specials cover band um these scenes exist um just you know it's it, it's underground stuff it's all underground movements um but they, again, these these are other examples of people that don't care about a manager. There's yeah. they're they're not impressed when you know so someone like me walks in the door. They don't care because I'm not the person that's gonna you know stream them on YouTube or whatever. But uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's a great point actually. And you know, everything's underground until it's not, right? Yeah. Like, who's to say that a ska band couldn't get big? They can, you know. No, but, but let's hope big. not. But, but let's I'm, hope yeah. they don't. But I'm saying they don't care. They're yeah. they're just performing because they love performing. 
and that's that's kind of the point I was trying to get at is that like they're going to be doing it whether it's the biggest genre in the world and you know they've got a ton of fans or they're just doing it for fun as hobbyists. Yeah, and it seems to me like these these SoundCloud rappers are these very niche genres. Like that's exactly what they're doing. And you know, and again, this is like this isn't like trying to be disrespectful to ska music. Um, I'm using that as an example of something that people wouldn't expect to be at that popular at, you know, that kind of party level, but it is. Well, the authenticity thing, I think is a super important takeaway. And for whatever reason, I think that in the, in, in the punk and hardcore world, I think authenticity tends to just come naturally in a way that maybe it doesn't in metal. Um, and I don't, I don't really understand. I, I, I can't really explain that because I grew up in hardcore, but I think you're onto something. But it still makes all the difference in the world. It does. You know, I mean, the authenticity, I think that is, you know, that's what people connect with more than anything else, more than production values. That's why production values don't matter on podcasts or videos or anything else. As long as if it, if, if the emotional connection is there, it catches on. So, how do people find out about these parties? So um, because we're, if we're talking about marketing and not spending any money, like where, if there's a whole scene of this shit in LA, like how does the word get spread? Like, what are they doing? They text us. Yeah. It's, it's word of mouth. I've I, like, I've never even seen like a Facebook invite or anything like that. I mean, maybe there's like a flyer that goes up on Instagram. Uh, but yeah, no, dude, it's, it, it's word of mouth. Um, and it's the same thing with like the punk shows that I go to, you know, maybe I'll get tagged in something on Instagram, but it's usually just my buddy hitting me up. You know, like so-and-so band is playing this warehouse. Come, come hang out. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what, like, that's how I always found out about shows, you know, is exactly the same way. Like, Hey, this band's playing in Pittsburgh next weekend. Let's go. Okay. So much in the same way that any underground show has ever been, promoted or any rave or anything like that it's just people find out about it somehow yeah you know you, you tell your friends like uh, yeah i'm sure this stuff ends up on the internet but it's you know in, in my feet at least it's being drowned out by pictures of cats and you know whatever other stuff i'm looking at that's not music related but you know if my friends want to invite me to their to a party or whatever they're gonna text me and that or you know there's, there's that immediate kind of communication or more direct communication. Um, but I mean, that's even how I found out about most shows, unless it's like some huge show at the forum or something. Well, even then you find out about a lot of those through word of mouth, right? You know, Hey, are you going to go see such and such band next weekend? You're like, wait, what they're playing? I had no idea. Right, you're right. That seems like such a scary prospect. If, uh, you know, you're an artist that's just starting out and you have no fans and all you have is a recording and you hear us being like, yeah, it's all word of mouth, but, but it really, but if it really is, it really is. So how would they get that started for themselves? Like, how do you bre even break in in the first place? Well, I, I think Finn's got a very interesting article about it on um, the punk rock NBA, which is really just do newsworthy shit or, you know, be somebody that people want to talk about. Right. Finn? Yeah, I mean, and what that means, I can't tell you because that depends on the specifics of you and your situation and what your strengths and weaknesses are. But, you know, it's like I said, I, I always give the example of a gimmick because it's just so easy to come up with off the top of my head. But 
if you were the band that always played in horse costumes, that's how you, I mean, that that's noteworthy, right? People would talk about this. I saw this band last night and they play in rainbow horse costumes. It's crazy here. Look at their video, you know, as an example. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I, I keep focusing on YouTube just because that's like the, I think sort of the new MySpace when it comes to like music discovery. I think that's where a lot of people discover music and I, and, and, so there's like the word of mouth angle of getting people to show up, you know, to see you play live, which is, uh, I think important, but I don't feel comfortable telling people what to do there because I'm not in a band. Um, but think about on MySpace, like, I don't know if you guys ever did this, but I found out about a lot of bands by, you know, I would listen to one band and then I would look at their top eight and I would, you know, listen to all those. And I would just like go down that rabbit hole forever. And I found out about tons of bands that way. And YouTube works the same way. I mean, there's that discovery mechanism built in, which is sort of a word of mouth thing. And, you know, it's going to be a slow build at first, but you know, if people start watching one video in your genre and if they're the type of person like me who really wants to go down the rabbit hole, eventually some portion of those people will find their way to your video. You know, that's how it happens over time. That's actually exactly how it happens. That's how I find things. Yeah. You're like, you know, you, we've all gone down the YouTube or Wikipedia rabbit hole, you know, but the YouTube rabbit hole and you're like, how the fuck did I end up here watching this? I honestly find m much more stuff that way than people sending me links, even people I know and trust. Um, it, which I don't know if I'm unique here. I kind of think I'm not, but I think that, uh, word of mouth is great, but it's almost like, uh, word of mouth puts a, an idea in my head. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to act on it, but then once I'm in that YouTube rabbit hole and I hear something I like, and then I'm like, oh, that's the band they have been mentioning then it kind of, it starts to form a bigger picture. Uh, so that's actually probably why it is important to have videos and to try to get yourself into those suggested video feeds. Because even with word of mouth, man, I don't know. I don't know how much people actually listen to each other about stuff to check out. Well, if you see all of your friends wearing, you know, a particular band's T-shirt that you've never heard of, chances are you're going to look at that band. If it comes up in my feed, yeah. But I might not remember that they were... Like, say, I see all my friends wearing a shirt. I note that they're all wearing that shirt. I note it next week when I see them. But that doesn't mean that between those two social events that I remembered that that even happened. However, if it then surfaces in my feed, then I'll remember that I saw them wearing the shirt, maybe I should check it out. Right. Like, well, so for example, that's how I just found out about this band called Slaughter to Prevail the other day. So I, I posted a video about Deathcore a while ago. And in the comments, everyone kept mentioning this band again and again and again and again. I'm like, well, I guess I should check it out. And I never did. But then I saw one of their videos come up the other day and I clicked on it and I listened to it. And that's exactly how I discovered it. And if I was, if I was to start a band now, that is the template of how I would try to build audience is, as you said, you know, like we've talked about this before, Al, like the surround sound effect, have people hear your name a bunch of times, you know, in a bunch of different ways. And eventually they're going to check you out just because they've heard your name so many fucking times. They're like beaten into submission. But I don't, but again, I think a key detail is I, I mean, again, I could be wrong, but I do really think the key detail is that they're not going to 
actively seek it out. Yes. Like and, and that's, an earth, a feed is going to show it to them and they're going to recognize it. Here's, here's, and then they're going to check it out. Here's the thing. You're using adult logic on what should be teenagers. No, I mean, look, let's, let, let's keep it real. The, the, the listeners here are, go, are professional recording musicians. And you know, nothing sounds better to No music will ever sound as good as it does when you're a teenager. It's you're highly emotional. You really connect on so many levels with, you know, whatever you're listening to. Um, that's just the reality. That's it. That's who consumes the most music. I know, I know, but I don't think that that pattern has changed for me in like, like literally decades. Like, I, I mean, even though the mediums were different, I don't think there were always people recommending bands. Oh, you got to check out this band. The mediums were different, but there's always that voice in your ear about what bands to check out what it back in like high school uh the the way to consume them would have been with the uh i guess the college radio thing that happened friday nights from midnight till six that only played metal that would be where i would come across the bands that everybody talked about but like six people would mention emperor and then I'd go buy an Emperor thing. Six people would mention Emperor. Then I'd hear it on the Friday night radio. Then I'd buy it, like which is the exact same pattern I'm describing now. So at least for me, it hasn't ever really changed. Just the medium, the medium's changed. Well, I mean, in the in that scenario, you know, you would need to rely on let's say Spotify playlisting for Emperor to come up for you. But um, I don't mean like what I was talking about. I don't mean people telling you to check out this band because, you know, somebody just saying that is what are people recommend for me to listen to some atrocious bands all the time. Um, but if I, if I'm at a show and I see six people wearing a t-shirt of a band that I've never heard of, I'm checking out that band. Like as soon as I get into the car and that, and that's me and my adult logic. When I was 13, 14 years old, I probably would have been right there on the spot. And that's how I found out about a lot of bands. You know, growing up the punk scene, I was just looking at the patches that the older dudes were wearing. And I, I don't think that it's so changed. the stickers on their guitars. Yeah, no, no, yes, totally. The stickers on their guitars. Like, this, this is how people found out about bands. And it showed that, you know, this band is good enough for people to, you know, promote or whatever uh, to spend their money on. And at, as a kid, I wasn't thinking that way. But now as an adult, I understand that pattern and uh, kind of how I was thinking as a teenager and why I made the decision to check out one band as opposed to another. You know, I didn't, che I, I didn't check out every crust band that would hand me a cassette at a show. But yeah, if I see a bunch of people wearing their T-shirts, to me, that says that that band is worth my time. An example of that is I would always see TSOL everywhere when I was a kid and I had no idea who they were. I didn't know anything about them other than I saw TSOL in every thrasher and on everybody's guitar and everybody's t-shirt. And it was exactly that. I'm like, man, I guess I should check this band out. And I did. And I hated them, but I did check them out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you got the wrong album. The way I s discovered behemoth is, uh, it comes to mind because I, f I became like a fan in that I bought shit by 2003. But for like two years, I had seen all the cool kids wearing behemoth shirts to every show. And just be like, what's this behemoth band? What's eh, whatever, forget about it, forget about it, forget about it. Finally, I met a show where behemoth was like third of five. So I was like, okay, this is that band that 
everyone's wearing the shirts of, and they fucking goddamn annihilated everything. Like, they were so much better than every other band. Like, it was just like, okay, all right, I'm buying everything now. Um, if uh, And I guess if I hadn't seen the shirts for, like, two years, I wouldn't have even stayed inside to for the band, you know, for the third of five band. Uh, so it does work. I just, I don't, I mean, I know everybody's different. And I, I guess it doesn't really matter because it's whether or not people see a, a name a bunch of times and then go actively look for it or see a name a bunch of times and then get it served to them and then go actively buy it. I guess it's pretty similar. The point is they need to see the name a bunch of times. So then you're probably wondering, okay, well, how do I get people to see my name? Well, I think people try to like, boil the ocean, you know, if you've heard that phrase. And by that, I mean, like they're trying, uh, they're, they're trying to, um, put themselves. So let's say you're in a, you know, a rock band or like a hard rock band and you're like, well, how do I get to be five finger death punch? Okay. Well, that's like 900 steps ahead of where you're at now. Don't worry about that. Just worry about like getting to the next step, you know, like get 50 people to show up to your show. And then once you can reliably, you know, get 50 people to come see you every night, then worry about getting a hundred and then worry about whatever, you know, just keep like one step at a time. I guess that's the thing that I would see, whether it's building a band or any other kind of businesses. I think people psych themselves out by just sort of setting a goal that's so impossibly huge that they just don't even know where to start and they just kind of get paralyzed. And I mean, we're doing a similar thing, even with the URM summit. Uh, my goal and this is a crazy goal, but I have crazy goals, is for it to be an event that gets about a 1,000 people uh, a year. That That's far off. But, you know, year one, it was like, let's just get 100 people in this room. Year two, we're going to have a, around 150, 160, which is exactly what we're looking for. Next year, I hope to have 200 and so on and so forth. And it's not like year one let's fucking do 500 people at this premium event and then we'll go to a thousand and then 15,000, you know, it's like, we're trying to add tens more people. I want to mention one thing also, um, which I've said before, and this is sort of changing the subject, but not really. I, I, I think that a lot of producers believe that they need to market themselves in the way that bands market themselves or that products market themselves. And I don't believe that is true because those are fundamentally different things. So for one, bands are in the entertainment business. And by definition, they need to have at least a sufficiently large audience, right? Like that's what they do is they play to large numbers of people or sell products to large numbers of people. So if a band doesn't have at least, you know, maybe, you know, some, whether it's 10,000 fans or 10 million fans, they got to have a decent sized fan base or they're a failure. But that's not true of producers or any other creative professional, like a photographer or an illustrator or something like that. It does not matter if, you know, all you need is, is 10 people who know who you are that give you, you know, work on a regular basis and you're good, you know? So uh, I think that is maybe we've talked about this in the context of bands a lot. But for anybody who's listening, who's a producer, keep that in mind. You do not need a big following to be successful. And actually, producers with big, big followings like Joey Sturges are a complete anomaly. Joey doesn't have a big following anyway. Following 25,000 people, that's 
that's a lot for a producer, but it's not actually a lot. And I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying like, there's just, yeah. And that is an anomaly even itself, even in itself. Fair enough. It's big. It's definitely big compared to most producers though. Yeah. And it, but it's not needed. No, absolutely not. You know, it's, it's funny. We know so many guys that are like crushing it with their studio business, crushing it. And they have like 50 Instagram followers or something. I've, I've shown this slide, you know, a couple times at the summit and in webinars and stuff like that. But like a good example of this is there's a guy named Sam Hollander, who's like one of the most fucking successful, like pop producers on the planet. Who's produced to like Katy Perry in one direction and like everyone else you can think of. And last I looked, he had like 800 followers and the guy's got to be a multi, multi, multi millionaire, you know? And I bet the people who follow him are all badasses, but that's exactly my point is it doesn't matter. He doesn't need more than 800 people to follow him. Yeah. Well, they make a lot more money off of much fewer people. Producers do. And you're, and, and producers are also not selling a product like say, um, waves, you know, or URM, you, what you, you're in the professional services business. So you should think of yourself more like an attorney or, you know, a, a surgeon or something like that than, you know, a band or a company that sells widgets. The thing is though, I think that for producers, word of mouth is also pretty damn important. It's just important for, I think any, any line, I mean, any, uh, any side of the fence that you're on with, uh, with the creative stuff that word of mouth will make or break you. Well, but I mean, that's my point is like, how do you, how do you find, you know, if, if you need a surgeon, you know, if you got to get heart surgery, you're not going to Google for heart surgeons. I hope, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nope. <laughs> you're going to ask around cause it's important, you know, when it comes to like professional services, which is what producers do. Um, I believe that word of mouth is the, the biggest way of finding, new valuable clients in my opinion i guess it's like when you're driving down the street and you see the lawyer the injury lawyer right would you call that guy i generally wouldn't i'd probably call a friend of mine who got through an accident and was really taken care of and it's true for it's true for managers too i mean dan has a band has a band ever told you that they contacted you because they googled um artist manager <laughs> no not, <laughs> never uh no you know most of mine are the bands I get connected with are referrals from buddies at record labels or attorneys, um, sometimes like a booking agent. But yeah, no, no, no one's going to find a man or no one's going to find a good manager just by Googling artist manager. <laughs> or I mean, looking at Yelp reviews, I don't know if some if that's even a thing. OK, so back to the I guess the whole chicken before the egg thing, which is, and you know, actually, Andrew Wade said this on a podcast when I had him like in. 2016 or 17, like no one's going to care about you until you've done something worth caring about when he was talking about, you know, getting studio business, how, it, you know, once you do something worth caring about, people are going to care about you. And it's similar to what you guys are saying about, you know, word of mouth isn't going to spread until you do something worth talking about. Isn't that a great quote? Like I think about that quote uh, from him often, actually. It is a great quote. It's really tough, though. It is. It's tough because it forces you to really think about what it is you're going to do. And then it's hard to come up with an answer, I think. It is. And the best best thing to do is to just start doing things. Um, and as vague as that sounds, the reason I say that is because, and I know this from being in a band, like 
Anytime that we tried to, like, come up with a plot or something, it just didn't go over that well. Now, it's totally different if you're a big band, if you're, like, behemoth, and you do that, uh, you know, that website, and you have great ideas and a great team, and your audience already expects certain types of things from you. And so, like, there's already this agreement, I guess. Uh, there's an agreement between Behemoth and their audience that a website like the one that we were talking about the other day where you chant the words in. Works with Behemoth. If I made that website, nobody would give a shit because it's me, not Nurgle. Yeah, exactly. So I think once you're a lot bigger, uh, actually thinking about these things uh, makes a lot more sense. But the, I think the problem is when you're at the, you know, nobody knows you stage, you can think of the most elaborate press getting plot, but, you know, almost nobody's going to care. It's, I'm not being negative. I'm being real. I, I, what I want to do is discourage people from trying to plot. Yes, exactly. And focus more on the authenticity. Make the video and song that you want to watch. You know, don't make the one that you think other people want to watch. Make the one that you want to watch. That would be my advice. Make the one that like you and your friends will go, man, that's the fucking coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I think that, uh, I guess just watching what your heroes do might not be applicable to where you're at and most likely isn't. Uh, however, like you said, or like we've shown, even with zero budget, if it's something that's awesome, people will probably you know, catch on to it. Dan, you, you've mentioned something earlier. We were talking about these SoundCloud rappers. I think there's something to be learned by just kind of like the fact that, uh, you know, they just are unapologetic about who they are. What were you saying about that? I mean, yeah, basically that, you know, that they, they have these personality, like quirks, like, like they're weird people. Um, you know, they're, they're definitely not your normal person, but they embrace it. They embrace their weirdness. They embrace, you know, the, the, the face tattoos and the like pink hair and yeah, you know, like abusing drugs. Um, it's very strange, but like, that's kind of part of, the, part of them. And they, they don't, don't do say, drugs, kids don't do drugs, but I'm saying like, they don't try to hide it. Um, yeah. and you know, like, again, if, I, if I can draw parallels to like, you know, the growing up listening to punk music, these bands ne that I listened to never once hid their, you know, drug or alcohol abuse. I mean, probably like 50% of every punk song ever made was, is about like, drinking, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, then you have the, uh, other bands that are way more open about uh, their substance abuse. And it's just like, it's just a part of reality. And they're really just putting themselves out there. Um, like, yeah, I it's think, like, I think that's the point to like hit on is not necessarily like, Hey, do Zans to be cool. Like, don't do that. But be who you are and like put it out there because like even though you think you're weird and you're the only person that, you know, is the way you are, you're not. You know, there's millions and millions of people like you no matter who you are. I think I've been thinking about this recently um, that I think Misha from Periphery is a good example of this is like he's a fucking nerd. You know, he's like a man child nerd and he embraces it. And I think that's a huge part of why people relate to him because he's into Legos and playing, you know, Xbox and guitars and shit, you know, like, and he doesn't try to be cool or 
aloof or anything. He just, you know, he's still that guy. And I, I think that's exactly right. The The point isn't try to appear like something you're not. And it just, it makes me think of examples from the 90s. Like, I don't know if you've seen this home video, tour video that Ministry put out in like 95 or something. But they were doing heroin on this video, like injecting right then and there. Oh wow! <laughs> like, like who, like who fucking cares? This is us. Uh, just yeah, shooting up. It's it's out there. You can check it out on YouTube. It was on their home video. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Now I saw it like recently and was like, wow, that's really really ballsy. But then I also remember bands in that time period that were like obviously clean trying to pretend like they were that. And it just seemed like the most contrived shit. And I'm not saying go do heroin at all. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is the authenticity is what is what won. And so if your thing is to be anti-drug, you know, cool. That's cool, too. Uh, it's just the authenticity that matters. Well, like the opposite of that would be Graham Cochran, right? I mean, he is. Yes, <laughs> he's squeaking. definitely the opposite of ministry. So, yeah, we are not saying like if you're you should be a fuck up because that's what people will identify with. Graham Cochran is the exact opposite of that. He is squeaky clean Christian family man. And, you know, I'm sure some people think that's corny. I'm sure some people think he's a fucking dork. And I'm also sure he doesn't care. You know, that's just who he is. He puts it out there and it works for him because he's comfortable with who he is. And no matter who you are. Like there's somebody who will identify with it. So to me, that's the takeaway, whether, you know, whether you're a depressed drug addict or whether you are a squeaky clean Ned Flanders, you know, like Graham, it doesn't matter. You just got to be who you are. But it's kind of getting to your point about people plotting and trying to like have this master plan and, you know, and why these SoundCloud rappers are clicking with everybody is because they're like, I don't have a fucking plan for anything. I don't have a plan for the next week, let alone my career. So I'm just going to make the video that I thought about this morning, you know, and then we're going to put it out there. Uh, man, I just remember there was this one photo shoot my band did where we were, we were like, we want to like look metal, but like not look like we just rolled, you know, off a couch or something, you know, so we dressed up a little nicer. And then, you know what it looked like? It looked like we were a bunch of waiters at a high end <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> It looks so stupid. The kid's first job interview where he borrows his dad's suit. Yeah. It's like two sizes too big and he it looks super uncomfortable. And We totally didn't look like Opeth. We looked like fucking waiters and like <laughs> didn't work. So, so yeah, I just wholeheartedly agree that the best path is the one of, you know, the one of honesty and authenticity. And uh, part of, I think, what makes that tough for people is that they might be struggling to figure out who they are. And one thing that I think defines really, really great artists is that they're very clear on who they are. So, you know, their point of view and what their message is, is whether it's a fucked up message or a squeaky clean message, they're usually really, really clear about it. You know, they might be psychologically traumatized in lots of ways you don't see or do see, but their message and, who they are as an artist is set, you know, it's a pretty set thing. So if people don't understand what that authenticity is, what that even means in the first place, maybe 
what they need to do is a little more introspection or create more art. Like maybe they're not ready to go public. Maybe they do need to just spend more time creating until they do find their voice or their point of view or whatever it is. They're, with producers, I think it's more that you're not necessarily ready to take on a band yet before a certain point, um, or at least not ready to tell a band uh, what should be what. Uh, until a, you know, until you have a certain level of experience, that's why the traditional, the traditional route works pretty well. I mean, it, the traditional route doesn't exist the way it used to, but it works pretty well, and it has worked because, you know, if you start as the person that's like sweeping the floors, it's not that you're sweeping the floors; it's that you're seeing how records are made around you. Like you're starting to like have that environment be a part of part of your life. And then when you graduate to intern, it's not about wrapping the cables, but it's about seeing all the little pieces that go into making a record or maybe being in the room when you see, you know, the big boss producer telling a band what to change or what not to change. And then once you're, you know, as you graduate these stages, you have much more experience and much more understanding of, what you can, you know, what you can and should suggest and what you should shut up about. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to really have that point of view before you've really been involved with lots of records at, on many different levels. So as a producer, I think it takes making, uh, being involved with records that you're not the boss of for a little while, a little while meaning a few years. Dan, are you, you know, as somebody who I, I think probably helps bands you know, think about how to choose a producer or potentially even helps them choose that person. How would you, you know, what are the things that make you want to work with a producer over another one? You know, I have to be really honest here. Um, I play almost no role in choosing the producer, you know, like there's, there may be a couple that I have a good feeling about that, you know, um, have put out records that I've really enjoyed and it was something new, but Really, I stay out of the creative process and let the bands figure it out. Like if they ask my opinion, maybe I'll present it. But um, I try not to interfere with the actual creation of music. But, you know, um, with with that out of the way, you know, me me fully disclosing that, um, I look at things like what the uh, producer has done recently. Um, you know, I've always been a big fan of like Will Putney and uh, and Machine because they were putting out records that I'd never heard bands that sounded like that back when I first heard them, like in 2010, 2011. So any chance I got, I would have liked, I liked to work with them. But yeah, it's just kind of whoever is doing something cool at the time that grabs my attention. But again, these are these are very rare instances that I would jump in with my opinion on who they should work with like that. Well, when you talk to the bands and they're going through the decision-making process, then what have you noticed are some common themes that bands will say go into choosing one? I mean, look, we got to be realistic and it, it, it's availability, the location. You know, if I have an L.A. band and they need to fly out to Boston for, you know, a month or two months, we didn't make sure we could do that. Or, you know, it's a lot of times it's not realistic. So on my end, you know, we are looking at these financials and seeing if we can even make it work. And then, you know, a lot of these good producers, they're just not always available, you know? 
some of the like someone like Bob Rock, we had to lock that in, you know, over a year in advance. So the, I mean, there's a there's a lot that goes into it. I can't just like throw out guesses, but yeah, so much of it is: are they available in the time frame that we have? Can we make the money work? Is it too far away to where the it financially doesn't make sense for us? And then you know, are they capable of helping, like vibing with the band? You know, when we did the Blackfell record with Bob Rock, we all knew. Bob Rock is known for guitar-driven bands, which is really the kind of record that Black Veil Brides had in mind. So it worked out for us. Now, you know, I don't think we would have been able to get the same quality or the same kind of record going with another popular producer that, you know, maybe focused more on, like, drum solos or vocals or, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, there's just, there's just so much that goes into it. Um, I can't take any wild guesses outside of just like the the financial aspects and maybe the if the ideas align. I suppose it's a little bit of a, of a different ball game when you're talking about Bob Rock and Black Veil Brides and Zach Wild. That's a world that very few of us uh, will ever <laughs> will ever be part of. So I guess the the rules there are a little bit different. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I just like for. It, again, it, but in my experience, it's very like it's all very limited. Um, you know, I'm not. I don't want to give out bad advice to people. This yeah. is just something that I'm not directly involved well, but, in. So but I. But everything speak you said it. there is very straightforward. I mean, it's not like there's some magic. You know, it's like, well, are you available at this time? Does it fit our budget? Do we like your style? I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? There's nothing. The, yeah, the I mean, hardest part of all that is like even the hardest part of this whole thing is for potential clients to be aware of who you are. That's the hardest part of all this, right? And then then they will, if they know who you are and they're familiar with your work, then you're like halfway there. Then the rest of it is just like the details you talked about, which either they work out or what they don't, or they don't. So I guess my point is, even at that level, it's not a mysterious process. No, I mean, you know, these producers, uh, even if it's somebody that I don't know directly or that the band has never met directly, they have some sort of connection with somebody, you know, with, within our team. Again, it's, like, it, it, it's a small music industry. Um, most of the producers know the A&R people at the record labels and at, at all the various record labels, or they know some, like, some attorneys, or maybe they even have the same attorney. Um, there's just a lot of ways for us to connect. And I mean, yeah, there's been, you know, when I was at Sumerian Records, there's been plenty of times where, you know, the, a, a younger kind of up and coming producer hit them up uh, saying, you know, we, we want to work on a record, one on a band on this record label. Here's, you know, here's what I've done. And they were impressed by it and yeah, kind of took a chance on this producer that people didn't know. I mean, they were reaching out, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a cold call. There was always some sort of connection. If I, so, if, if that's so making if sense. It, yeah, it makes sense. And so if you are earlier on in your career, then how do we apply that same line of thinking? If let's say I just trying to get to the point where I consistently have bands coming into my studio, you know, and giving me just some amount of money, a couple hundred dollars is fine. Well, how do we, how do we apply that same line of thinking? Well, who is the person in my scene who are, or who are the people in my scene that are well connected? How do I get to know those people? How do I become part of the conversation? You know, how do I do work? How can I create a piece of work that I can share with people 
that will make them bring me up next time they go, man, we really need to record with somebody. Do you know anyone? And they go, oh, I do know. I know this guy. I guess to me, the steps are fairly straightforward. And I think a lot of people are just frozen, you know, paralysis, analysis, paralysis, or whatever you call it. Like the steps are pretty simple. And those steps are exactly the same as they were 15 years ago, by the way. Like that, that they haven't changed. Um, I mean, how people record has changed, but that, that basic thing of getting to know who the tastemakers are, whether you're talking in your area or you're talking about in a bigger scene or whatever, that's the same. That It's all the same. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, back to what we were saying before, like if someone can't figure out what that authenticity means or they're having trouble um, getting the tastemakers to pay attention to them, or whatever, I think that it comes to a problem of not being ready. Or they haven't tried enough times because, you know, part of becoming ready. Well, so, well, okay, so let's let's maybe unpack that a little bit. So if you're not ready, what do you do? Does that mean you stay, you spend the next year at home in your room, not talking about, not talking to anybody and just like, tweaking, you know, your mixes for a year, maybe, or does that mean that? So, and then at the end of that year, you'll be ready. And then you come out of your cave and suddenly you're amazing and everyone's going to want to work with you. No, I don't think that's what it is. I think what it means more is as a producer, rather than being the guy that's trying to get like the better known projects to hire you as a producer, it's uh, trying to get an internship or, trying to work with smaller bands or trying to edit dramas for somebody or doing lower level stuff to build up, you know, to get more notches on your belt as an artist. Or make your own song. Yeah, yeah. Or make your own song, yeah. Guys, I've got a question for you. Uh, is it weird for a producer to ask for a, for a referral? Like, let's say you had a good time producing with a band and you're you're happy with what came out of it. Is it like, would it be normal for a producer to say, hey, you know, it, if any of your friend bands are looking for something, you know, to, to record, I'm here. Uh, kind of thinking back to when I was in banking, um, when I would work with or try to acquire high value customers, uh, that's exactly what I did. You know, I knew that, you know, wealthy people were friends with other wealthy people. And so if I had a good experience with somebody and I knew they were happy with my work, I had no shame in asking them for a referral. And sometimes they actually came through and, you know, referred their, you know, coworkers or their friends or, you know, what have you. Um, can the same idea be applied to producers? Yes, but it's a, it's a little different in how it actually works. And at least in my experience, um, asking for a referral kind of like the way a dentist's office does doesn't normally really work because you're putting weird pressure on the bands to kind of go out and sell for you in a weird way. And they don't necessarily like to do that. But the referrals do come in when the bands do go out into the world with something awesome and other bands ask them about it. And so um, to let the bands know that if they, uh, you know, if some friend of theirs in another band hears this record and likes it, please do get them in touch. Um, but it's it's slightly different than having like uh, 
someone out there proselytizing for you, which I mean might work sometimes, but in my experience, very few people will actually take up on it because they feel weird about, they just feel weird about it. Um, However, if someone is asking them about their own record and they're feeling stoked about how it sounds, they'll want to talk about it. And then in that case, it's a natural thing to be like, you should go check out this guy's studio. Yeah, that's a a little bit more what I meant, but I feel like that just that word of mouth is probably the the best way to market yourself. It is. If one band is really happy with what you've done, I feel they're going to sing. They may sing your praises. Hopefully it's not like Yelp, you know, where you can have... 15 years of great service and then one day there's no parking and you get a one-star review um i would hope it's different with producers and you know bands can say what a great experience they had and how helpful that you know the producer was or how easy it was to work with them whatever the important uh factors they're trying to hit people will i've noticed that people will overlook all kinds of horror stories if a producer is putting out um stuff that gets results (laughs) <laughs> like you hear all kinds of nightmares about people and they'll get tons of work still if they're if they've got like the sound that people want people will put up with a lot in order to get that sound so i don't even think that bad reviews matter that much as long as the producer or the mixer are like delivering um delivering what's asked of them uh at least from what I've seen, you can get away with murder if you're delivering results. Yeah, I think that's pretty true in a lot of uh, a lot of professions. Any key takeaways you want to finish this off with? Mine would be just like make stuff, make stuff and put it out there. Don't. I think you were totally right when you said don't try to plot too much. Just make shit that you like, put it out there, and keep doing it over and over and over and over and over again. That's my takeaway. The plotting should be to have enough time to make stuff <laughs> plot to make stuff make shit that you like put it out there and repeat until your dreams come true there you go yeah fuck it dude this is metal just be yourself this is rock and roll be yourself or this is hip-hop be yourself it doesn't matter this, be yourself this is post-rock be yourself be yourself <laughs> well cool thank you guys yeah, thanks, thanks for man. having us take care this episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast has been brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago. With one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications, Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to tfunk.com. This episode was also brought to you by Fascination Street Mastering Studios. Have your songs mastered by Jens Bogrian and Tony Lindgren, the engineers that mastered bands like Opeth, Dimu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Creator, Sepultura, Amon Amarth, and many more by using the coupon code URM18 in the online mastering configurator. You'll receive a 15% discount on your order. The code is valid for the rest of the year. Visit www.fascinationstreet.se to learn more and book your mastering session today. If you like the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast, make sure you leave us a review, subscribe, and send us a message if you want to get in touch.